How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 16 of X-Lapsed. And today, we're going to discuss a series that's uh, going to be a little bit difficult to look up any information about, uh, mostly because if you type New Mutants 2019 into Google, you're likely going to be met with results that show you, like, some awful cosplay masquerading as a movie. Um, it actually took me a little bit of doing here to just... To just Google the uh, on-sale date. I wanted to make sure and confirm that the uh, on-sale date in the book was actually the day it went on sale. So it took me a little doing because it kept wanting to show me, well, crap I don't care about. Now, as I record this, uh, about 10 minutes ago, I just received my latest DCBS shipment. Uh, that's Discount Comic Book Services. I get a monthly box, and uh, it came with three Road to X, Road to X of Swords issues. So that, uh, it looks like it's going to be here before we know it. Um, actually, when I started this program, I was hoping to be caught up by then, by the time X of Swords hits, but uh, I think we'll still be lagging a bit behind. Uh, I'm guessing that maybe by the time the event wraps up, we'll be up to date. Uh, but, you know, who knows? <laughs> I, I, I am recording these things a couple of days in advance, just in case life gets in the way, so I can keep this on a regular-ish schedule, but... Uh, you never know. I guess we'll see how it goes here. But today, let's hop right into New Mutants number one. Now, this one had a January 2020 cover date. The story's called The Sextant, written by Ed Brisson or Brisson and Jonathan Hickman, with art by Rod Reese or Rod Rice. I am so sorry. I, I can't pronounce anybody's name. Hickman, I can say. Everything else, I'm lost. Uh, Let is by VC's Travis Lanham, designed Tom Muller. Head of X, Hickman. Edits, Biso White, Sobolski, $5 book. It's going to be interesting when we actually get down to $4 books pretty soon. Uh, this one hit the racks on November 6th, 2019. Now we open up in flashback. Uh, Professor Xavier and Storm are present as a mutant emerges from one of those, uh, you know, gold ball eggs, or I guess egg eggs nowadays. Uh, it's Rain Sinclair, Wolfsbane. And uh, A... It's so weird saying Rain because in my head it always sounds like Ronnie or Ronnie, but it is Rain. Uh, people have uh, people have outnumbered me on that. And B, I totally don't remember her dying. Um, though, as I've said many, many times, I've been away a little while. Uh, my research instincts really—they tell me I ought to find out how and when the, you know she passed, but I really don't want to spoil myself on anything. It's, uh, you know, I find, like, anytime you try to look up information on comics, it's kind of... People who read comics want you to know what they know, and they want you to know that they knew it before you. Uh, it's kind of like if you were to, like, watch a TV show or a movie, uh, like, sitting on a couch next to someone who already saw it, and, like, as a scene starts, like, oh, well, this is the scene where this happens, and you're just sitting there like, just let me watch it. <laughs> let me enjoy it. You don't need to ruin the whole thing. I believe you when you said you saw it. Uh, just like I believe people when they say they read it. Anywho, we meet up with Rain in the now, where she looks to be completely at peace. She's soon joined by Shan, or Karma, and they have themselves a chat. 
Karma invokes concepts like the self and faith and offers Rain an ear anytime she might need one. And Rain's all, eh, I'm over it. So, uh, part of me wonders, uh, or actually all of me wonders, uh, does this mean she no longer has her strong faith? Um, I mean, that was a very, that was like a core part of her character for most of her existence. Uh, but I suppose, you know, actually dying might just change the way a person views the afterlife. So <laughs> we can allow it. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that later on here. But first, let's meet our cast. Karma and Wolfsbane Natch. Uh, Mondo, Cypher, Mirage, Sunspot, Chamber, and Magic. Then we get our double page spread at creds. Then we scoot off elsewhere and we catch up with Mondo and Cypher. Which, you know, as a, as a teenager in the 90s, this is a pair that I never thought I'd see occupy the same panel space, you know? Uh, now, Doug is trying to have... Uh, he's having Mondo try to use his Earth-based powers to communicate or to maybe absorb some of the island itself. And it ain't working out. Then Doug's like, well, we're all here. Maybe Krakoa can try on his end. And, uh, and Krakoa does that, taking over Mondo's body and causes a really gross Krakoa face to appear on his big old belly. Uh, now, the face then begins to speak... Krakoa proclaims that he ain't digging this either, and he vacates. Uh, this leaves a very confused Mondo, who promises to punch Doug in the face should he ever suggest such an experiment ever again, and Doug's all, yeah, my bet, he accepts it. We next shift scenes over to the sextant at the Akadamos Habitat. Here we join Danny and Roberto. They give each other a quick and dirty expository chat about mutant history, which... For my taste, doesn't give me near enough new to go on, uh, though, uh, for someone who is A, better adjusted, and B, coming in cold, I'm sure this was more than enough. As they walk and talk, we see them passing folks like Glob Herman from Zorn's special class, also Monet and the Penance twins, and uh, a group of Hellions that looks like a mixture of the original Frost students and those from the, you know, Academy X-era New X-Men. And uh, I'm kind of lost on the Penance twins thing. I, I thought M was now going by Penance and was able to sh like shape shift into Penance. Uh, I really don't know. Though I will concede that the M story confuses me even on my best day, and I suppose today is not that day. We follow Danny and Berto into their Krakoan dorm, where they're greeted by Magic and Chamber. They're another pair who was a kid I never thought I'd see on panel together. Uh, I mean, Magic was, you know, reverted back to a to her youth and died of the legacy virus before Chamber was even a thing, so never thought I'd see them together. Uh, anywho, they reveal that there's this new kid named Fauna who figured out a way to create Krakoan coffee, complete with the flavor of innocence and sincerity. Well, I guess there's another thing off of Logan's shopping list. Uh, you know, before long, Call Me Kate's not going to have to make any extra stops while she's out in the wild. So that's that's a good thing. Now, Eliana is, like, totally cracked out on the coffee, and she's hogging it all to herself. Um, now, it's worth noting here, and throughout this issue, many of the Eliana panels have this, like, weird and, like, wonderful Sienkiewicz-esque flair to them. Uh, it's hard to really explain it any other way. It's really awesome, though. Now, the friends are then joined by Rain, Shan, Mondo, and Doug, and they all have a cup. Well, Mondo passes, actually, because he saw exactly how the beans were made, and, uh, well, we'll just leave that there. 
While everyone chats and has a grand old time, we pop over to Danny and Berto, who are sidebarring about the conspicuous lack of Sam. Now, Sam Guthrie, if I'm remembering right, got hitched and had a bunch of kids up in Shi'ar space during one of the, like, 800 Avengers books that was coming out every month around the time of Secret Wars, you know, 2015. And I tell you, that was a horrible time to be an Avengers completionist, which uh, which I was. Uh, so many damn books. And, uh, and only, like, one or two actually worth owning, much less reading. You know, Marvel milked that property so hard, it, it was squirting dust. You know, it was pretty... Uh, it was well milked. Um, anyway, they missed their pal, and so Sunspot suggests that maybe they all go for a ride. Next thing we know, the new mutants are on board the Starjammer. Now remember, Scott and the gang gave Corsair a Cohen gateway plant over in X-Men number 1, which we discussed in episode 13. Now Corsair warns the kids that the Starjammers and the Shi'ar ain't exactly the best of buds, and so he'll drop the kids off somewhere at the edge of Shi'ar space. So they're going to have to find uh, their way to Cannonball's place in Chandelier from there. Birdo's down with the plan. After all, he's got a pocket full of money, and he's sure they'll find a ride. Mondo and Doug break away to take a look at the Starjammer's Arboretum. Mondo says he likes this dirt a lot more than Krakoa's because Krakoa's is itchy. Okay. Uh, now Doug's gateway flower begins to communicate with the actual gateway, and this is confirmed by Chad or Chad who has been taking particular care in the Arboretum of late. You see, he spent the better part of the last decade trying to grow something called Pomum. Now, Pomum is explained as being a delicacy from his whole home planet that only ripens every ten years. And, as a misfortune would have it, this Krakoan gateway flower that Cypher's carrying is causing the Pomum to perish. Thinking quick, Doug jams the flower into Mondo's belly. Like, literally. He doesn't, like, feed it to him. He just jams it into the big guy's earthy, girthy gut. The Pomums might be saved, but Chad is still very much annoyed. We jump ahead several days, and uh, we're going to talk about the logistics of this in a bit. Um, Magic and Raza are having a duel while the rest of the Jammers and New Muse cheer on. Worth noting here that Hepzibah is, like, uncharacteristically annoyed by the kids. Like, real sourpuss, which I don't really recall being in her character. Um, I mean, she seemed perfectly pleased at Summer House a couple episodes back, and I think for a while she... or not for a while, but she had a stint as an X-Man, you know, earlier in the decade, or last decade, I suppose. Anyway, they're all watching. Roberto and Corsair, they decide to place a bet on the fight, which is a bottle of Kentucky bourbon. After a couple of pages of fighting and chatting, Magic, in a very Sienkiewicz-y panel, slices off Raza's robot arm. So she's declared the winner, and poor Corsair has to hand over his prized bourbon to Sunspot. The next day, the Starjammer arrives at a place called Benevolence, and it's on the very edge of Shi'ar space. Corsair describes the place as being the ass of the Empire. He informs Sunspot that the Jammer's gotta make a stop here to do some pirating. Sunspot offers to come along, but he's told in no uncertain terms that the new Muse are to remain on board. Sunspot argues a bit, claiming to have a wicked space lawyer in case they get in trouble, but Corsair is not willing to budge. We jump from here into a pair of info pages. Uh, they're, they're fun, though. Uh, the first of which is a wanted poster for the Starjammers. Uh, looks like the bounty on Corsair's head is 2.5 million whatever-the-hell currency they use in Shi'ar space. It's denoted as SC, so... Maybe Shi'ar Currency? 
Shi'ar credits, Shi'ar coin. Yeah, that'd, that'd be a lot of coin. Uh, worth noting that that little fuzzy bird thing that hangs out on Chad's shoulder that came with his action figure back in the day, Curry, is only worth 500 creds. So that's too bad. Next info page explains a little bit about benevolence. It's described as basically a place where the Shi'ar store their exotic junk. Uh, there's a special note here about something called the King Egg, and we hear that mishandling this bugger could lead to something called the Super Guardian Protocols, which now I'm now almost 100% certain is something we're going to see. Uh, Corsair fills in the rest of the kids on why they need to remain on the Starjammer while they go to work. Now, he tells them that benevolence is full of four-armed fundamentalists. And I think this was supposed to be far funnier than it actually wound up being. Though it does give us Rain calling out judgy fundamentalists as being the worst thing she can imagine. So perhaps that's another hint that she's not the same, you know, God-fearing Rain of before. Now, the kids complain about wanting to stretch their legs, which, I don't know, begs the question, why the hell are they still on board to begin with? Isn't there a Krakoan gateway on this ship that could take them home? Like, can't they just go home and come back when the Starjammer's a little closer to their destination? I really don't get the logistics of this trip here. Uh, I mean, I'm going to assume to get on the ship in the first place, they took the gateway, right? Am I not supposed to be thinking that? or I don't know. It just feels like, hey, you know, give us a ring when you're in, uh, when you're by the Shi'ar space and we'll pop on in. Or maybe they just... Stick their head in every few hours. How, how, are we there yet? Are we there yet? I don't know. But uh, anyway, no sooner did the jammers leave than the new muse decide that they're going to follow him anyway. Birdo tells them to settle their tea kettles and suggests that maybe instead of leaving, eh, maybe they'll, ha- they'll just imbibe in some of his newly earned prize bourbon. The kids agree to get plastered, but as soon as Birdo's out of sight to get the drink, they leave anyway. Five minutes later, Roberto returns to an empty room, and he uh, he wonders why he was surprised. So, where are the rest of the kids? Well, it looks like they're about to swipe that king egg thing. The Starjammers enter the scene and warn them to stand down. According to Raza, the kids are, quote, messing with things beyond their mortal ken. Danny calls them out about lying about the forearm fundies, which is kind of dumb. And so, Corsair calls them out for, well, being dumb. The Starjammers are pirates, and they steal stuff. It's their whole gimmick. Of course he was lying. He was just trying to get them out of their hair so they can go steal this king egg thing. Uh, Raza grabs the king eggs, king egg, and the jammers jam out. The kids go to follow. However, some Shi'ar guards get in their way. Corsair decides that these kids have gotten themselves in this mess, and, uh, well, they're going to have to find a way out of it themselves as well. The kids find themselves trapped behind a pillar of sorts while the Shi'ar types keep blasting their blasters in their direction. Chamber decides enough's enough and jumps into view to, I don't know, freak the Shi'ars out with his crazy half-face? Whatever it was. Back on board, the jammers inform Berto as to what just went down. Sunspot's all, alright, let's go save my friends. Corsair's all, nope. He informs Berto that uh, there really is no we in this situation, and the new mutants were... uh, they're most definitely being left behind. Berto pleads for a bit, asking why they deserve such a fate. Chad cites the death of his plants. Hepzibah cites the kids being annoying. Raza cites magic cutting off his arm. And Corsair cites Roberto stealing his whiskey. Sunspot can really only speak to that last one, saying to Corsair that he, you know, he lost that whiskey fair and square. 
To which Corsair rebuts with, well, I lost that, but you lost your ride. And with that, Sunspot is unceremoniously kicked off the Starjammer. He takes the last swig of bourbon and kind of winks at the reader that he's, uh, you know, about to save the day. One page later, he sh- surrenders to the Shi'ar. Now, Danny ain't pleased, but Berto reminds her that he's got this really, really good space lawyer, which takes us to our final page, which is an info page that gives us an advertisement for space lawyer Murd Blurdock, which uh, I'll admit is, is pretty cute. Alrighty, so let's have a swig of some ill-gotten bourbon or some maybe innocence-flavored coffee and talk about this. I had an absolute blast with this issue. Um, I'm sitting here trying to think of a single thing that happened here that I didn't enjoy, and I can't. Uh, This felt like an actual New Mutants comic. Uh, Even with the sort of amalgamated team of Young Mutants involved, we have, you know, Gen Xers in there, too. But uh, this issue felt very much like home. Uh, And it was an issue where I... You know, maybe just a case of me getting over myself I didn't need to worry about neurotically fitting in bits of continuity, right? I was just able to sit back and just dig this issue It was, uh, it was really, really good You know, one thing I definitely want to give these Dawn of X titles Is they're giving us some very fun teams Think back to a couple episodes ago Marauders, that's a fun team Even Excalibur, which really didn't blow me away has a really solid cast of characters. Uh, I'm not sure who the flagship flagship X-Men title will ultimately feature, though if it were the cast we saw in the first issue, I wouldn't be upset. I mean, these we're getting some fun teams here. This amalgamated New Mutants Gen X team is, is pretty solid. I like it a lot. I gotta say, the art here was ridiculous. I absolutely loved it. Clean and stylized With this dash of Sienkiewicz thrown in at key moments Just phenomenal I hope Rice or Reese I hope I figure out how to say your name First of all, but I also hope you stay on this book For its entire run It it was just, oh it was amazing Amazing stuff here Now the interaction between these characters Felt completely natural And it also felt as though This book was written by actual fans Of the New Mutants and Generation X As well I really dig seeing Roberto in a sort of leadership role. I mean, we're used to seeing him more as like the hot-headed guy who really doesn't worry about rules or, you know, mores. And here he is trying to trying to be the leader. I think that's a lot of fun. Uh, I'm also really enjoying him and Danny together. Um, I think that this uh, there are a lot of possibilities there. I like that. Uh, Magic was a lot of fun here Though the coffee binge scene might have been a little too cute Um, Shan Didn't do a heck of a lot Uh, It's only the first issue But uh, That's usually what I think think, What I think when I see Shan Is that hey she's probably not going to do a lot I I can think of Like very few times where she stood out Um, You know Of of course during the original New Mutants run there There were Bits with her, you know, growing to, you know, immense, morbidly obese sizes. And there were just story beats that featured her. Um, Even when she made her guest appearance in, I want to say it was X-Force 75, the Burning Man issue. She showed a lot of characterization there. Uh, Here, eh, she's just kind of there. Now, Rain. Let's talk about Rain here for a bit. Now, she's one I'm pretty interested in seeing where, where she goes here. 
First of all, like I said, I didn't know she died. I don't know. I'm I'm trying to think of the last time I saw her, and I, it might have been like in X Factor or all new X Factor if she was part of that team. But I don't remember her dying. Though I'm, I mean, I, I doubt they made up her death. So I'm I'm guessing it happened in a book I just didn't read or just a book that didn't remain with me. Uh, now, second of all, I wonder how her resu- resurrection is going to play into her faith. Uh, and there are a few interesting ways I think they can go with her. And I got to say, at this point, I think I have enough faith in in Hickman and company uh, that I'm pretty sure they'll treat this with subtlety and respect. Uh, I mean, faith is a sticky subject to discuss, and it's easy to discount, um, and it's easy to uh, just dismiss. But I'm hoping that I'm hoping that, or I'm confident that Hickman will uh, be more subtle and uh, respectful than that. Though I have been wrong before. Now the addition of the Gen- Generation X kids was cool. I, I always enjoy seeing Chamber. Uh, Chamber was one of the cooler character designs of the mid '90s. I think uh, he's always just very very striking uh, character uh, model there. Mondo, uh, Mondo, I don't know all that well. He uh, wasn't with Generation X all that long before he was revealed as a uh, you know Black Tom spy or whatever it was. I think that was around Gen X twenty five or so. Now I don't know if he made any sort of comeback over the last couple of years, or if maybe just the dart landed on his name when they were putting the team together. Whatever the case, though, I do I do think he fits in good here. I like that. Uh, I mean, we're dealing with Krakoa, we're dealing with greenery, we're dealing with Earth, and uh, that's kind of his gimmick. So makes perfect sense for him to be here. It's always neat to see Doug. Uh, Doug is uh, Doug is like a. Like the ultimate like straight character He's a straight man character Where he could just play off of any character Maybe that's part of his mutant talent <laughs> You know, he can he can communicate with anything But he can also play off of anything I, I find him an interesting character If they don't go too far with uh, Like overcompensating with how Ineffective his power is in battle I, I think there's a lot of fun there Overall, New Mutants number one was damn solid uh, damn solid And uh, it might might even be in the running For the strongest first issue of the line with me So Had a blast Loved to read it, loved to look at it The words, the art, everything Was really, really good here And uh, tomorrow we're going to be taking a look At X-Force number one So uh, it, it almost uh, makes too much sense To go right from the New Mutants to X-Force But we'll see what the new look X-Force Is going to be all about I'm seeing some very un x force characters on this cover here I mean, we got Gene, Colossus Well, Colossus was part of X-Force for a little bit But seeing Gene on there is kind of weird uh, Wolverine, of course, he's going to be on every team probably But uh, I'm looking forward to seeing where that goes But before I let you goes, Got one piece of feedback we're going to discuss today And it's from my, my good friend and... Uh, Regular broadcast colleague Chris Bailey At Charlton underscore hero of course And he's delivered some Hox Pox thoughts here And uh, I was really looking forward to getting these Because he, like me Is a lapsed X-Fan And uh, he says as much In his opening line So let's get right to it He says as a lapsed fan as well This book was a roller coaster of likes and dislikes He's going to start with the dislikes One, length There were too many info pages. Some did service to the book, but other pages, like the quote pages, were just inexcusable. 
This was a six-issue book only. It went way too long here. And I, I, I mostly agree. I mean, there was definitely... There were definitely pangs of decompression to play here. Um, a lot of scenes were repeated. And uh, plus, so many of those, you know, X to the third power scenes were, were pretty drawn out to the point where it felt like... It felt like Hickman was just impressing himself with, with silly words and he wanted to keep going. He wanted to hear himself talk. Uh, this would, uh, you know, Hoxpox would have been a damn solid six-issue overall series. Though I, I could probably push it to 8, uh, 10 at the absolute most. It did not need 12. Uh, it certainly didn't need 12. I mean, 10 probably would have worked better because you can play up the whole Mora X thing and the, the just X in general being 10 and the powers of 10, you know. But, uh, yeah, 12 was too long. I, I think I mentioned during the Powers of X number 6 review uh, back in episode 12 that... You know, there were like eight new pages there Because it, all it was was two scenes that they replayed You know, we started with with Mora and Charles at the, the festival Then we got a little bit from the future We got a little bit in the near present with uh, Mora's No Place And then we jumped to the party at the end So it felt like we really didn't need that issue for that We could have We could have cut some other scenes down And easily cut at least two issues out of the thing But... I mean, what's done is done, and, and it's also current year comics, it's just the way it's gonna be And those quote pages, yeah, those were rough uh, not, I mean, they weren't rough because they were just a line, but I'm trying to digest that and trying to reconcile the fact that these were $5 books And uh, they were filling pages with single-line quotes just to make their, their page quota to justify the price it was... It felt a little insulting if, if I can remove like the fan of me out of this And just look at it as a you know simple dollars and cents thing Which isn't always the easiest thing to do But then again, sometimes it's, uh, it's the hardest thing not to do When, when it comes to certain books uh, Back to uh, Chris's email He says, uh, people being out of character Three characterizations that were completely foreign to me He's going to start with Mr. Sinister being fabulous when did he become a slippery low-rent comedy act? Could not stand this. <laughs> and I said it, you know, time and again during the second half of Hoxbox. The take on Sinister was one who really stuck out to me uh, the most as well. That's definitely not the Sinister I rem remember from, like, any time in my fandom. That isn't to say I didn't... Like, I didn't... I, I laughed, you know? I, I can't say I didn't laugh at a lot of his lines because they were funny. And maybe it was just the juxtaposition of seeing this character that I've built up as being this, like, ungodly evil being fabulous. Uh, <laughs> maybe it was just the juxtaposition that got me, but it was very strange, and it didn't feel... It didn't feel right. This wasn't the guy who showed up in Inferno. You know, it was very strange. Uh, the next one Chris calls out is Storm the Cult Leader, who was intentionally made to look like pop star Rihanna. And you made me run back to the long box here and flip through the issues, but yeah, yeah, she does look a bit like Rihanna. I totally missed out on that the first time around. Um, the odd cultiness of her presentation of the Resurrectees is another one of those things that stuck out to me since the original, you know, the initial reading. It felt very much out of character and... I just overall, overall, very uncomfortable. I mean, she's acting so strange, but everyone around is cheering. 
I mean, it. Uh, I'd say it wouldn't. It didn't pass my smell test, but my batting average when it comes to making predictions isn't exactly major league quality anyway. But it's it's very out of character, and people are cheering her on for it. Very strange. Uh, the third character Chris calls out is Wolverine. He says the kid, the kid friendly, fun loving fool. And I mentioned this one early, too. Uh, this is another one that jumped out. Uh, now knowing all we know about the resurrection process, part of me wonders, and, I, and I, I am, you know, Magneto called me a cynic. I, I am a cynic. Uh, part of me wonders if maybe there have been a bunch of Wolverine resurrections. You know, um, also, you know, that cynical part can't help but wonder how much Xavier might be influencing these characters. And I mean, influencing either by... Tinkering with their data during Resurrection Maybe, like we talked about the other day um, You know, Wolverine has problems with aggression Well, maybe we can roll back something Maybe we can play with this data Maybe we can put another bit in here To make him a little kinder and gentler So maybe he's tinkering with their data For each Resurrection Or maybe he's just wriggling his way into their minds That's, that's you know Definitely not out of character for Xavier uh, Wayne Booth uh, wrote in early uh, on this run of episodes to suggest that the weirdness that we find in that scene might be due to the fact that we never get to see the X-Men happy. And I still believe he might be onto something there. Uh, and, uh, you know, if it were any other character but Wolverine, I, I don't think I'd have batted an eye, but, but it was Wolverine, which felt very, very weird. Um, but uh, Wayne's, you know, Wayne's suggestion that we're just not used to seeing them happy, that's, that's very possible. That's very possible here I might be looking for things where there's nothing there It might just be a I don't know, a scene that Hickman wanted to put in there uh, Another thing that Bailey did not like The librarian and the failing scenes Could have been removed and very easily Be something more pertinent to X lore I'm not a fan of them of Retconning them into the big beds And diminishing all the famous X rogues As just obstacles to, uh, by the time They reveal themselves Awful, awful stuff here yeah, the X3 stuff was a toughie, and I, I know I haven't shut up about it. <laughs> I've made my thoughts clear, well, I'd say clear, but as clear as my thoughts can be anyway, about the far-flung future here. I was not a fan. Um, I, I really feel like that's, you know, I'm not a Legion of Superheroes fan, and that felt like a Legion of Superheroes story. Uh, you know, future or not. Um, another thing Bailey did not like, the X-Eggs and Major Deaths. In a book where Wolverine, Cyclops, Archangel, and many other main X-characters die, I did not feel there were any reason to worry because they'd be right back. And they were. They hatch from eggs. Eggs? The idea itself is mind-boggling, and on the surface level, I hate the thought of it. Yeah, now Hickman and company definitely tipped their hand a bit when they offed the entire a-list X-Men team uh, During that Mother Mold mission um, When when they landed Or when they were, you know, shot at And Archangel and Husk died Well, those are characters I could see dying for a little while Those are characters I can see going away And taking off the taking off the table for a bit I, You know, they're Archangels, I, I guess Archangel, you could say he's an A-lister Husk is not But, I mean, if we're doing this Grand sweeping story here and you gotta get an A-lister off I mean, off the table Archangel's as good as any But uh, I feel like 
in the course of that issue, the pendulum, you know, we had this pendulum swinging, and it passed, it swung right past, uh-oh, to, oh, okay, <laughs> you know, when you just killed one or two, or maybe Mystique being, you know, jettisoned from the, uh, from the satellite, you know, that's when you're thinking, like, uh-oh, how are they going to fix this? But then when everybody dies, you're like, oh, okay, well, they're going to fix this. They're definitely going to fix this. So took a bit of the steam out for, uh, for you know, in as far as, you know, the ever-present and nebulous stakes. Now, Bailey goes on to the positives. The art on House of X. These X-Men looked perfect, and I mean Jose Luis Garcia Lopez types of perfect. There's the right mix of class, uh, comic classic, yet movie somewhat accurate. Pepe Larraz is a star. House of X looked visually stunning. Agreed 100%. 100%. Larraz killed it. Just, uh, I wish we had uh, we had Larraz on, on one of the ongoings, because that was just phenomenal work. Another thing he liked was resetting the bar. The exile into Krakoa, establishing an ex-status quo, a mutant council made up of classic X-Men and the rogues. Apocalypse joining the X-Men was amazing. Magneto and Xavier working in tandem was great as well. Agreed. Agreed. Um, that uh, that mutant council, the quiet council of Krakoa, that was, uh, I believe that was House of X number six as well. Just that that issue that gave gave me chills, you know? Um, that's That was one of those scenes that was just... I think the way I put it was it it, it was so wrong it, it couldn't help but feel right and and I I, I stand by that for sure. Uh, the next thing he liked was Mora's story. The many deaths of Mora were meaningful and purposeful. Her meeting with Charles on the park bench was great. Uh, when we discovered that her role was key in saving the future of our heroes, I loved it. Yes, yes, definitely. The uncanny lives of Mora X was definitely a valuated piece to the X lore, and I won't lie to you. I was a bit uneasy about it to start. I was like, what are they doing? Why are... Oh, my. You know, I don't know if I made it terribly clear during the episode, but the first time I read that, I read that... I read that last year for the first time, and I was just like, what? <laughs> you know, first, first, you know, the fact that Mora was, was a mutant in the first place was enough to, like, really pull me out of it because that was her whole thing, is that she wasn't a mutant, you know? So that was what initially knocked me, you know, for a loop. And then, you know, you add the, the resurrection power and and all the memories, and, I mean, you get to the point where you... If, if you're able to accept it, it becomes a wonderful piece uh, and just such a uh, wonderful uh, narrative tool. And I, I definitely think... I think there's going to be more to her story, and I, I, I can't wait to see it. Um, fourth, the fourth thing he liked was uh, the team all together now. He loved the mutants all aligning, the good, the bad, the council, the celebration. Dazzler, you know, Dan, doing the singing, there's Pyro, there's Havoc, tons of other X-Men. It was an all-star scene. It was epic. And I tell you what, that scene was a bit of a toughie for me to get through. Um, I wasn't expecting it to draw that much emotion out of me, but I'll be damned if it didn't. It was just a, a beautiful scene. And I, oh man, just the feelings that were going on when I saw those characters interacting again and just, just being delighted with each other's company. You know, we had resurrectees, we had the standbys, we had, 
A-list, B-list, C-list. It was just, it was perfect. It was as close to perfect as you're going to get. And uh, I haven't felt that way reading a comic book since uh, the the Barry Allen Wally West hug during DC Universe Rebirth number one. And that one, I've done a few episodes on on this channel, and... I usually have to stop the recording as I read that one out because it, it, it affects me really, really hard. And, and it, it came close with this uh, with this party scene. I thought I was going to have to stop because, man, it was strong. It was strong. I absolutely loved it. Um, I've said House of X number 6 gave me chills numerous occasions. I was not kidding. Uh, that was That's 100% truth. Um, loved that scene. Loved that scene. I'm not sure we needed to see it twice. But I loved it. Another thing he liked was the future X-Men. I just dug these new characters. I initially thought the Endgame was a brand new group of X-Men. I'm glad it sort of worked out. Yeah, Hickman won me over with the Year 100 crew. Um, I was expecting to absolutely hate... The, actually, you know what? Maybe hate's a strong term. Uh, I was expecting not to care at all. I was expecting to just skim those pages and just you know get me to the people I know. You know, uh, but by the time they were taken off the table, I actually really liked them. And uh, oddly enough, we only knew them for maybe, what, 15, 20 pages total? And their being wiped out actually felt like a loss, which really speaks to uh, Hickman's ability and, and characterization. Um, and, and, of course... You know, the character designs, the, the, the designs were strong, and the idea, the chimera, and the, you know, it's a, it was a good idea. It was a real good idea. Now, uh, Bailey wraps up his message with, Overall, I loved the heck out of this story. Thanks for doing the show. It really feels good to at least understand a current-day X-book. Let's read some more. To which I say, here, here. <laughs> I, uh, we're all about it. We're going to keep going as, uh, as far as we can go. And uh, and I'm having a good time. I'm having a good time reacquainting with these characters, and also uh, hearing from from folks who are doing the same or who haven't left yet. You know, it's it's a very good time. This is a very fun project, and it's a very uh, satisfying and rewarding project for me on on so many levels. I get to I get to chat with people. I get to rediscover this. Uh, this property that I have loved for over 30 years. I get to actually have them again, you know, where I didn't for a few years. And I never thought I'd be going back. I thought I was done 100% never picking up an X-Men book, much less a, Mar- like a Marvel book, much less an X-Men book. You know, I, I thought I was just 100% done. But I guess what they say is true. You, you know, <laughs> you always come back. And I, I am uh, proof of that. But that's where we're going to leave it for today. Now, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find writings at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com or the Xlapsed page at xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearths.com. All the show notes are there. You can listen to the shows in order. Uh, chrisandreggie.podbean.com is the main feed where you can find all of our audio exploits for the past five years. Um, those are not in order, though. <laughs> those take a little doing. I am in the process of making subdomains for every program on that channel, so it'll be a little bit easier to traverse. But uh, that is a lot of work, and 
Blogger is not exactly the most user-friendly at the moment. So it'll get there, and I'll keep updating as I go along. But I'll stop yammering now. We're two-thirds of the way through the number ones here. Just got X-Force and Fallen Angels to go, and we'll get those real, real soon. So thank you all for hanging out. I really, really, really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you all for reaching out. You don't know what that means to me. And uh, till next time, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 22 of X Lapsed, uh, where we're going to be talking about my other favorite book from the uh, all the number ones of Dawn of X here. We're going to be talking about New Mutants number two. Let's hop right on into it. This had a January 2020 cover date. The story is called Space Jail, written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Rod Reese. Uh, letters, VCs, Travis Lanham, designs, Tom Muller, edits, Bisa white Sobolski. cover price, $3.99, went on sale November 27th, 2019. And, uh, right off the bat, this issue has a really fun cover. Um, though part of me feels like it might have been intended for a later issue. Uh, that is, of course, uh, if I'm under the assumption that the cover is reflecting anything that might go on inside the book, which... I suppose really isn't a current year comics concern, so who knows. But uh, it does look like it's a story beat. It's just not a story beat we see here today. So let's crack her open. And uh, here we're presented with our roll call. We're going to have Karma, Wolfsbane, Mondo, Cypher, Mirage, Sunspot, Chamber, and Magic. And uh, we open with a couple of pages of Berto recapping everything that's gone on and uh, bringing us up to speed on some things we weren't privy to, which I really like. It, uh... Very efficient use of a of a you know paginal real estate. Uh, he talks about uh, the t- you know how he talked the team into visiting or as he puts it rescuing Sam. Uh, he got all of his ex course uh, corp business in order first. Uh, they caught a ride with the Star Jammers, and during that pirate heist last issue, we actually learn here that the New Mutants they uh, they pocketed uh, whatever it was that was stolen. 
Now, I guessed it was the king egg, but I'm not so sure that's what it actually was. I suppose we'll we'll see as we go. Um, turns out that the star jammers, they thought they had it, but all they really had was the container that the, the thing came in. Uh, we do get a shot here of Rain shoving whatever it is into Mondo's belly, which I, I guess is going to be that poor fella's gimmick. You know, dude who has stuff jammed in his belly, which... You know, with a gift like that, Mondo should uh, maybe try to join the Legion, right? I think that's right up there, Ellie. Um, now, from here, the new Mews are arrested, as we saw. Uh, Magic messes with the people on the inside with their soul sword, and Bobby uh, connects with his wicked space lawyer. Three days later, they're in front of the judge. Before we get there, however, uh, how would you like uh, two mostly blank pages that only contain the credits and indicia? Because uh, that's what we got next. And I'm, I'm sorry I bring that up every episode here. I'm not sure why that annoys me so much. Um, because at the end of the day, it's not like they're going to give us extra comics pages instead of it. Uh, we'd probably just get another house ad for one of the, you know, five or six overblown Venom events they seem to have going at once these days. Um, but yeah, double page, spread of creds. Back to comics. Uh, that space lawyer, uh, Blurdock, or whatever his name is, he pleads his case to the uh, judge. But... The new mutants are found guilty anyway, and they're given a life sentence, long-term custody of the Shi'ar Empire. But it's not so bad, because the folks they've been placed under the custody of are Sam and his wife, uh, Crusher or Smasher, or whatever stupid name she's got. Um, in a really cool panel here, all of the new mutants run over and like embrace Sam, right? And that is the legacy new mutants. So I'm not counting... The Generation X contingent, because they're not all that impressed or moved here. So we get this really awesome panel of this like tremendous group hug with uh, Chamber and Mondo just standing out there, not not really uh, not part of it. I think that's a really cool uh, really cool thing. Uh, it's worth noting here that Cannonball's wife is really 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 annoying. Um, not a fan. Uh, the new muse asks how Cannonball found them, and after joking that he's placed trackers on all of them, he reveals that Bobby's wicked space lawyer actually got a hold of him instead. Uh, Quake or Crumble or Smash or whatever stupid name she is, she uh, complains that the call woke the baby. Uh, but confirms for, at least the time being, she and Sam own the convict new mutants. Uh, here, Bobby and Sam have a bit of a contentious reunion, which uh, feels pretty real. Uh, it's kind of a tough pill to swallow when your friends kind of like move on, uh, like enter new stages of life, and, and you kind of don't. So uh, I can totally relate to this little back and forth here. Uh, then, as you know, just as it's getting good, Sam's wife, What's-Her-Face, rushes in and punches Roberto right in the face. Uh, she's just ticked off about the entire situation and doesn't want to be here in the first place, to which I agree. I wish she wasn't here either. Uh, now, Sam helps Berto to his feet, and they hug, saying that they missed one another. Next, an info page. Uh, it's the court order. Uh, probably not something we needed to see. Uh, the whole thing leads up to a gag or a joke that just says that uh, Roberto's wicked space lawyer sucked. I don't know if we needed a whole page for that, but that's what we got. Uh, we shift to Shi'ar space, where Sam's super guardian wife, Smasher, so I, I guess her name is Smasher, uh, she gets a call from Gladiator of the Imperial Guard, and he reveals that he's got a job for them. Then, another info page. This is just uh, showing Gladiator and his two advisors. 
And, uh, you know, I'm really enjoying this issue so far, but enough of these for now. Please, can we can we have a moratorium on these? Can we just not not do these for a little bit? I don't know why this is getting so under my skin, this issue. Um, but not everything needs an info page devoted to it. This whole thing that's here on this page could have been summed up in a narrative caption later in the issue. Didn't need this page. Again, it's not like they would have given us comics instead, but still. Uh, we jump to Sam's pad, and the New Mutants are playing some weird card game with cards that they can't read and don't understand. Well, Cypher gets it, but that's kind of his gimmick. Now, Danny bluffs and says she's got a good hand, and so Jono calls her bluff, at which point she reminds us all that she, quote, fights bears. And, uh, Danny, we really want to go there? I mean, the, you, you, you didn't, the, the bear kind of kicked your ass, right? It was, your, it was your pals who put the bear down back in the day. Uh, then again, I guess we got to try to cram a demon bear reference in here somehow. Uh, uh, there's a movie coming out or something, right? Not that Marvel wants you to know about it or, or pay money to go see it. Uh, now, the card game goes on for over two pages, and it ends with Danny proclaiming herself the winner. Until Doug, who can actually read the cards, tries to correct her, and Danny elbows him in the ribs all casual-like, and he comes around to the fact that she, in fact, won. It's a cute little scene. Uh, from here, we catch back up with Sam and Bobby, and uh, the latter fills in the former on all the goings-on at Krakoa. You know how they start in a new language, how there's a quiet council. Uh, nothing about Xavier dying, which, I mean, the New Mutants wouldn't know anything about that at this point anyway. Uh, Smasher comes in to interrupt and reveals that she's got some good news, and she's got some bad news. Now, the good news is all charges were dropped against the New Mutants. The bad news is they've been drafted into carrying out a mission for the Magister. So, what's the gig? Well, to answer that, let's pop on over to Gladiator and Friends. He's talking to a young Lalandra, Lalandra Deathbird-looking girl, which uh, stands to reason since her, na- her name is Zandra Neramani. Uh, they're trying to groom her for her eventual ascension to the throne. So how do the new mutants figure, figure in? Well... They've been sent off to fetch Zandra's aunt to be her new advisor. And, of course, her aunt is Deathbird. Sunspot gets one look at the bird lady and decides he's in love. So these uh, synopsises get shorter and shorter as we go, right? These aren't quite Hoxpox-level synopsises here. Uh, And they're not first-issue synopsises either, so these uh, won't take quite as long (laughs) as we move along here. Um, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this issue here. Uh, I really enjoyed my time with it. Uh, though, and I mentioned it during the synopsis here, I don't know why, but the info pages were kind of like nails on a chalkboard this time out. And it's not like there were more of them than usual. It's just the ones we got were just so pointless and just really felt like page eater, you know? Um, it just... It felt like they only told so many pages and, and needed to needed to fill it out. Um, now, when we started this little journey of X-Lapsed here, I mentioned that there are a few kinds of comic stories that I automatically tune out on. And we talked about it with the X to the third power. You know, X-Cubed was a far-flung future, and I told you I can't do those. <laughs> I really lose interest with far-flung eras, future or past. And the other one is Space Stories. And uh, I think we can say at this point, this arc, at at least right now, it kind of sidesteps my worries a little bit. You know, it makes the focus of the story more about the interactions between the characters and not like the starry setting. 
though the Shi'ar Imperial Guard is still terribly boring to me. Um, I'm not sure I've ever read an issue with like a primary focus on Deathbird that I'd ever care to read again. Maybe this one will buck that trend. Or maybe it won't. <laughs> I guess we'll see. Uh, I am a total sucker for scenes like we got where the kids were playing CODs. Uh, I really enjoy the new mutants just acting like friends. Um, it was nice to see. It, uh, it reminded me a bit of like the post-crossover quiet issues that Scott Lobdell would do back in the 90s where it was just the team being, you know, being more of a family, you know, just chatting and, and catching up and just having a good time together. And I, I like that a lot. Uh, now, Cannonball showing up here was cool, uh, though, and this might just be me, I, I could totally relate to Sunspot's sort of kind of standoffishness with his, uh, you know, his best pal. Um, and this isn't anything that's necessarily unique to me, but I, you know, a lot of us, you know, have been in those situations before where, you know, you have a really close friend and you lose touch, right? And maybe months go by, maybe years go by, just, you know. It happens. It's just, you know, the paths we take in life. Um, you know, they they fork, you know, and we go different directions. And then when you when you meet up with them again down the line and uh and like you see that they're in this whole new phase of life, you know, maybe they're married, maybe they have children, maybe they're you know, they have a degree, they have a great job. Um and then you look at yourself, right? And uh and, and this happens, this happened a lot to me, uh, but, uh, like, you'll see your friends who are in these new phases of life, and I'm just stagnating, you know? I, I'm almost, like, reluctant to accept that anybody's life can go on with me not in it, <laughs> in a way, which is is weird, um, because... On the other hand, you know, relating the other way, it was like my life didn't go on without these people in it, because I'm still in the same place, you know? That uh, that really explains a lot of my, like, late teens, early 20s, uh, friendships and relationships, and I actually did a whole episode of Chris's on Infinite Earths about it. Um, that's episode 23, Adventures of Superman number 4, I'm sorry, 549, and that is in the archives, if anybody's interested in hearing what a uh, sad sack I am. So yeah, it's like, a, you know, this sort of a scene is kind of a kick in the gut, you know? It makes you question, you know, how far along are you in your life, right? How, what what opportunities have you passed on or missed out on or just didn't try hard enough to see through? Uh, definitely relatable, and um, I found myself feeling kind of bad for Bobby. Uh, either that or I read too much into it or I just projected onto him. Either way, <laughs> it could be that. Uh, now, Cannonball, I liked seeing Cannonball's wife, not so much. Ish. Um, I wouldn't have so much of a problem with her if she didn't strike me as, like, that, like, lazy Bendis archetype character. Like, like a woman whose entire character can be summed up by her anger or snark. I mean, at least that's the impression I'm getting here. I, I, like, I can't separate Smasher from, like, the Quakes and the Maria Hills of the universe. It just, ugh. Then again, I might just be projecting. That's always a possibility. Overall, I really dug this issue. I thought, uh, you know, there was some real fun character moments here. I really, I don't know why that panel where Jono and uh, Mondo are, like, excluded from the group hug affected me so much. Uh, I, You know, I've made it clear here. I started 
my X journey in the early 90s. So the New Mutants were, were never my team. They were never my peers, you know. The Gen X kids were, you know. The Jubilee Skins uh, was a Sink uh, Husk. Those were my peers growing up. You know, they were in my uh, cohort, I guess. Uh, we were of the same age, so... I, I find myself relating with them so much more because I experienced all those things firsthand with them. Whereas the New Mutants, I had to revisit that later on down the line. So seeing them left out of this group hug, I it bugged me, but I loved it at the same time because like they wouldn't be you know just because they all wear X's on their belts doesn't mean they're all pals. And uh, not that Mondo hung around all that long in the first place, but I just thought this was a very powerful panel and. Uh, and what we know about Hickman's writing is, you know, there are no accidents, right? This this was supposed to, this was supposed to be sort of a demarcation, and I loved it. I loved it. Uh, you know, Sam and Bobby's scenes, uh, wonderful stuff. As I've you know talked way too much about already, I thought this was a a real a real nice character piece between the two of them. Uh, you know, friends who hadn't seen each other in a while, catching up, and they're they're. One's a different guy, and one is uh, the same old guy. It's I like that a lot. Um, now, as much as I enjoyed this issue, I'd be lying if I said I'm looking forward to whatever's heading our way next issue with Deathbird. Uh, I'm not a fan. <laughs> I'm not a fan of the Imperial God. Um, yeah. Uh, but again, you know, maybe this will be the story that bucks the trend for me. Also, again, maybe it won't. <laughs> Who knows? But, uh... Real fun issue, real fun issue for the most part Um, And next we will be talking about X-Force Which brings us right into our feedback section here Because we have a letter from Damien talking about X-Force number one Now he opens up with I have to start with thanking you for all the nice things you've said about my feedback This podcast has been a real source of joy in what is a difficult time It's fantastic to know that I have a podcast to look forward to daily Thank you I mean... Thank you, actually, for sticking around and continuing to reach out. Um, you know, anybody who reaches out here is part of the show. You know, I, this isn't just me, you know, sitting in a in a room by myself spitting into a microphone. This is, you know, all of us. This is, and, and I mean, I wish I could put into words what it means to me that people are, are willing to reach out and, and just listen. Um you know, one of the hardest parts about creating content for the internet, whether it's, you know, a blog you write or audio, video, any sort of production, the hardest part is finding people who are willing to engage. Um, I can say with complete honesty that if folks weren't reaching out and chatting me up about the show and, and these books, it would be far more difficult to find the motivation to continue doing it. Um, it's hard, you know, I... As much uh, as a buzzword, a corporate buzzword as synergy is, right? I, I think we all kind of like roll our eyes at the concept of synergy because it's just become a like a corporate go-to. There, there is a real, there, there's something real to it, you know? It's uh, We all propel each other here, and uh, and it means the world to me that there are folks who are listening and, uh, and are reaching out and uh, being part of this with me, joining me for this journey. It really, really means a lot. I mean, I've been doing this blogging, potting thing for a half decade now, and so much of it has been met by silence, you know? it's. 
but you keep on keeping on. You you have that hope that uh, you know what is what is what was that? Dan not wasn't Dances with Wolves. It was the other Kevin Costner thing. Field of Dreams. You know, you if you build it, they'll come. You know, and you have to just hope that uh, that they will. And they don't always, but when they do, it's it's wonderful. It's wonderful. So thank you and, and thanks everybody. Uh, back to Damien's message here. He says, hearing your responses to the feedback, I re- I realized you're not the cynic. You still have enough hope that you kept treating Titans after it became micromanaged by DiDio. You're possibly the most hopeful man in comics fandom. <laughs> Those were some very difficult years as a as a Titans fan. Um, now, the Titans are basically like my DC X-Men, though I'm sure that's not something that's unique to me. Uh, the Titans books, the Titans family of books, when there are families of books, um, they're definitely of the can't-quit-you variety. And, you know, just like the X-Men, I have a nearly full run of Titans since, you know, they first appeared in the Silver Age. That said, it's been mostly garbage for like 15 years now, which... Well, there's another similarity with the X-Men, <laughs> or at least how I describe the X-Men. Um, and, you know, on the subject here, a grip of those awful Titans issues were uh, written by the uh, the guy who's writing X-Force right now, Ben Percy. So there we go. It all comes back full circle. Uh, back to Damien. He says, I gave up on looking for a logical consistency in my comics continuity around about 1995. And since then, I've mainly focused my attention on the peripheral books. I would not buy a DC Rebirth number one because I know it won't mean anything unless I read everything that DC releases. Even then, I know anything can be overwritten by management if they decide they haven't got enough readers. And that's 100% true. Now, Rebirth number one... I've discussed Rebirth number one a couple of times on this channel. Uh, we did a Cosmic Treadmill, and uh, I also did a Crystals on Infinite Earth standalone episode uh, going through Rebirth. And uh, one of the things I tried avoid avoiding calling it was... Kind of the buzzword that was going around at the time was that uh, Rebirth number one was called DC's apology letter to the fans, right? You know, after flushing many of us away with the New 52 for what turned out to be very short-term gains, though a couple of titles, not, uh, you know, notwithstanding, you know, Batman and Justice League would remain strong throughout, you know, all five or six of the New 52 years. Um, unfortunately, though, from how things shook out, Rebirth number one, if you were to read it today, feels like it mostly exists outside of continuity itself. You know, a few things managed to stick, but not as many as you'd hope. Uh, hell, I mean, you'd hope everything that would that, that would come up in an issue proclaiming to lead to a new, just a new era, would, would lead to something, but it didn't. Uh, I think a lot of that had to do with uh, Jeff Johns slipping seats in the DC hierarchy, but, I mean, if that's the case, just... <laughs> Give the books to another writer, right? Just get someone else who can do it. Uh, unfortunately, though, Mar- uh, DC fell into that, like, Marvel trap uh, of, like, letting superstar creators stomp on all the toys and leaving nothing behind but, like, a mess of broken pots, right? Uh, DC of 2020 actually feels very much to me like Civil War-era Marvel. So was I 2004, 2005, 2006-ish? Uh, folks who know me and have listened to the shows on this channel will know that Civil War was kind of my Rubicon. It was what finally cured me of my Marvel zombiedom. So uh, DC is in that sort of uh, is in that conversation now, um, where I post Rebirth I went all in. 
Uh, I, I didn't read very many of the books that I bought, but that's just me being an idiot. But I did go all in. Uh, I took... I didn't take Rebirth as the apology that many people said it was. I just took it as, um, you know, getting to getting to see old friends again. You know, reconnecting with something that gave me joy. I, I felt like it was safe to come home again. You know, not that DC was my home, per se, but... Uh, Oh, but the new 52 most certainly wasn't. So this was different than that. Um, it just feels to me like... I don't know. <laughs> Back to Damien. He says, Obviously my sickness is believing that Hoxpox Docs is the one Marvel relaunch where they will make it possible for me to follow along without buying everything. The X-Men are so important to me that I want them to be for me even when it isn't. Dude, 100%. <laughs> That is the toughest thing. Um, You know, knowing your time's passed with a property or knowing that you're no longer wanted as being part of the audience for a property is such a hard pill to swallow. And, you know, not to keep referring back to the New 52, but I still remember the day that it was announced that DC was going to flush, you know, 70-plus years of legacy in order to search for the mostly non-existent new reader. You know, it was a Memorial Day 2011. And, uh, oh boy, that day sucked. People like me were heartbroken. I mean, we spent so much time, effort, money on these characters and these stories. You know, uh, and, and I've talked about this before where people are like, well, they're not, they're not coming to your house and taking the comics away. They're still there. It's like you're missing the point, dude. On the other side of the coin here, you had people like me who were heartbroken, but on the other side, people were almost like celebrating our loss. They were like dancing on the grave of our DC, letting us know that our time had passed and it's time for us to go because all the problems in the comics industry are our fault. We need we need to be out of here so th- things can you know flourish again. And I mean, that's, that's kind of how I felt about Marvel, too, probably ever since uh, Axel Alonso was slotted into the uh, EIC seat. Uh, people in my cohort, people of my vintage, were more or less told, hey, these books aren't being written for you anymore. Unfortunately for Marvel, the joke was on them, because despite the fact that they're not for people like me, check it out. Turns out the only, peop- the only it's only people like me who still plop their cash on the counter for this garbage. <laughs> you know, you didn't get your new readers. At least not in numbers where it would matter. Uh, I'm happy to be back in the X camp with Hox Pox Docs, but, uh, you know, i got to be realistic here. I'll concede that the jury is still very much out on whether or not this will be an extended stay or just a visit. You know, it's it, a, lot, a lot remains to be seen. Um, so far, so good, but... Uh, you never know. And like you said here, uh, something from on high could change everything. I, I always say about the comics industry, we're just, we're, we're, on, we're like one day away from the wrong person seeing the wrong line item on their budget sheet and deciding, why do we still put money into this? <laughs> and comics would be wiped out. But uh, on, an, on a less severe note, we could have a new editor seated in there and be like, what is this crap with Krakoa? Nope, not doing this anymore. So, I mean, you just never know. You just never know. That's part of the problem, I think. Uh, 
it, we're, we're a we're a fandom that gets raked over the coals for for not accepting change when all we have is change, right? Yeah. Back to Damien. He says, I crave the feeling I got when I used to pick up Uncanny, New Mutants, and X-Factor and read them and reread them. If I read them now, I still love them. And I totally have similar memories. Um, my core coming in, you know, 91, 92, they were like the big four X-Books. You had Uncanny X-Men, you had X-Men Volume 2, X-Factor, and X-Force. Back then, I could actually buy my entire wor- month's worth of books for a single $5 bill. My uh, local shop did not charge tax to kids, and they were all $1.25 each. So, five bucks, I get all my books. And uh, like you, I read them over and over again. I read the letters pages over and over again. Everything I could read, I would it would just be ingrained in me. It's When I flip through some of those early issues, they... The, the panels are almost, like, iconic now. Even in just issues that aren't, you know? It's just because I've seen them so many times and they've they've meant so much to me. Um, also, um, I read them over and over again because I was a wizard kid, you know? Wizard, the guide to comics. And I looked for anything that happened in any issue that might make it a key. <laughs> you know? Not that I had designs on selling them, I just wanted to own something that was valuable. I wanted something that I could look in the wizard price guide and it would say first something, you know, or it would just have anything denoted on the line for that issue. And it's it's really crazy the things that you'll, you know, see in a comic when you want to see it. I uh, An example I, I usually recall is uh, having my phone ring uh, while we, my, I was eating dinner with my family. And I was probably 12, 10, 11, 11 or 12. And the phone rang, and it was my friend. And uh, my mother was very annoyed that he called during dinner, but uh, she let me talk to him anyway. And he told me, hey, you got to check out, you know, page whatever in this book that we just bought today. And I flipped to it, and I'm like, okay. And it was a, it was a, an executioner's song issue. Um, so late 92, I guess. And he's like, he's like, dude, I think this was the first time we ever saw a Cyclops without his visor on. Because it was a picture of Cyclops without his visor on, because Strife had knocked it off. And uh, the things you, like, talk yourself into seeing is, like, we were certain that, like, in the next issue of Wizard, uh, we would see we would see a note there that this was the first time we saw Cyclops without his visor on, which is laughably stupid. But uh, we were stupid kids. What are you going to do? Uh, back to Damien. He says, on to X-Force. I only bought this first issue, and I immediately dropped it. I really don't care for the security angle. It's nice to see them doing something interesting with Black Tom, but everything else felt like it was going through the motions, and the cliffhanger was a failure for me. Of course they can resurrect the professor. And yeah, I think I gotta agree. Um, I mentioned uh, that I was worried that the cliffhanger was more of a meta thing. You know, like we're being like what we're being groomed to expect from an opening issue. Because I have very little doubt that Charles will be stomping the yard again very soon. And we have already know that he's got backup Cerebro units. Also, is a little, also a little bit telling is the fact that outside of Magneto brooding a little bit in Fallen Angels, nobody seems all that bothered by his passing. I mean, we saw people dancing the other day. <laughs> it's no, Nobody really is too worried about it. Um, so yeah, there's... I don't know. It just feels like a... A little baity, right? A little baity, a little switchy. Um, 
Uh, Damien continues, I'm not a big fan of the ultra-violent X-Men stories, but I have to acknowledge that the action sequences were well-drawn, but this is just not for me. And yeah, this is definitely different in tone from the rest of the line. Um, I hate to sound terribly precious, but uh, it... It almost insisted upon its violence, right? The art, it, it was very good It was very solid art, but uh, yes, darker and uh, very violent um, Damien continues Interestingly, I have seen some people raving about how great this book becomes So maybe you'll convince me to give it another try And I, I purposely stay out of the circles where these books are being discussed So I haven't heard a whole lot of hype uh, Hopefully it becomes something great Though, uh, with... All the domino stuff on the next bunch of covers eh, I kind of have my doubts uh, She's just not a character I'm all that fond of following Because I feel like all, so many of her stories are basically the same You know, like she goes somewhere, she gets caught, she gets out uh, It feels like that's every domino story Maybe, you know, just like with uh, with this new mutants issue Maybe I'll be proven wrong, you know, who knows But uh but that's Damien's message. As always, huge thank you for uh, for reaching out. It's very, very much appreciated. Our last bit of feedback comes from our friend Jason here, and he says, uh, this is regarding Excalibur number two, and he says, Excalibur number two is the first Dawn of X issue I've read specifically to follow along with X-Lapsed. So, thanks? <laughs> I was, uh... I, I had to laugh out loud when I saw that message, um, because uh, Excalibur number two... If you listen to that episode, not in my wheelhouse. Um, <laughs> so the thought that someone else actually read it um, to follow is 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 it tickles me. Um, means a whole lot to me though, Jason. Thank you. It's uh, definitely different, right? <laughs> it's something different. <laughs> Jason continues. Although, in fairness, right after that, I also went and read the first official X of Tens event, so S Tens of Swords or Xs of Swords or whatever we're calling it, and woo boy, I'll redact spoilers, but I did decide that if I wanted a chance in Otherworld of understanding that event, I would have to go back and read all of the Excalibur book, and po probably some previous volumes of Captain Britain, and possibly order some Absinthe off the dark web, but uh... Thank you so much, Jason. Um, I have not been following any of the hype for X of Tens of Swords of Tens of Xs. <laughs> I haven't been following any of it. Um, I don't know what to expect from it. I do know that uh, that people are calling it Tens ten, uh, ten of Swords, uh, having to do with like a tarot card or something. I will probably still be calling it X of Swords, but uh, that's just me being an idiot. Um... Yeah, so I guess uh, we won't be able to drop Excalibur then, huh? Not that I, not that I was planning to, but uh, we'll have to play. We'll have to keep paying special attention to everything that's going on in Excalibur. Right? I think I saw on the credits for uh, for X of Swords, uh, Teeny Howard is a big part of that, and uh, since since she's also writing Excalibur, it does stand to reason. So yeah, so I, we'll see how it goes. I'm I'm not sure what to expect from it. Uh, like I said, I'm trying to avoid as much of the hype as possible, so it's uh, so it'll come to me as a uh, as fresh as possible. Though I think by the time X of Swords is over with, we should be caught up. If uh, if I keep at this for the next hundred or so days, <laughs> we'll we'll get there. We'll get there, and it'll be all good. <laughs> but uh, 
you know the captain britain stuff the older captain britain stuff it's funny you mention that because i was actually just flipping through a couple of those collections um that i have i think i mentioned the a few episodes back that i that i have precious little uh, familiarity with the uh you know with the uk the marvel uk captain britain stuff um but I do have that Alan Moore, uh, Alan Davis trade that Jemis and Casada screwed up the Indicia on, and also a Davis and Delano collection. And uh, I was thinking about breaking them out to do do a little something with. I, I do have some other projects that I'm kicking around, and uh, I think that might be a fun one to do. I think that might be a, an interesting one to do, because I think so many folks have uh, have missed out on it. Um, I know that that, uh, that Moore and Davis... Uh, Volume. I don't know that it's still in print, or if it was even in print very long because of the Indicia mix-up. But uh, I'd like to share some of those because those were those are some great stories. Um, I don't know if I talked about it here or on a different show, but uh, yeah, I mean, they were able to make that 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 character, the Fury, like the scariest thing in the world, and uh, that's always cool. That's always cool when you when you can take this uh, when you take a character and actually make you make you scared of it i think that's a that's a damn good thing for uh, for comics but uh that is jason's message thank you so much for reaching out jason and also thank you for making me jealous by posting the picture of uh, your walk <laughs> of your, your your autumn walk where the leaves are changing color out in uh, new england where here i am in arizona and it's still triple digits fahrenheit and uh the bushes in the backyard are dying, but that's about as folly as we're going to get. But uh, thank you so much. Uh, if you'd like to reach out, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find the show notes at ChrisIsOnInfiniteEarths.com or xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can find the complete audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I think that's all I got for you today. Just uh, thank you all so, so much one more time. And uh, till next time, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to uh, an extra raspy 39th episode of X Lapsed. I apologize if I do come across as raspy. This is like the third thing I'm recording my voice on today, so it's a uh, uh, my instrument's worn out a little bit. But uh, the good news is today we've got a really good book. This is New Mutants, Volume 4, Number 5, out of March 2020, Covenant. The story's called Endangered Birds, or Endangered Boids, as I, as I might say. Written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by Rod Reese. Letters, VCs, Travis Lanham. Designs, Tom Muller. Edits, Beasel White, Sabolsky. Cover price, $3.99 American, and went on sale January 8th, 2020. And we're back! Yeah, this, uh... I mean, this book's got Deathbird on the cover, but at least we're off the farm, right? Not that, uh... Not that we, we won't be back there next issue, but hey, we, we take any victory we can get here on this show, right? So, here we are. We're at the beginning. Does this mean that this issue will wrap up our time in Shi'ar space? Surely they won't end this issue on a cliffhanger that won't pay off until after another day at the farm, right? Right? Now let's find out. Now we open with a Bobby Drake... Bobby... Bobby Drake? No, Bobby DaCosta refresher on everything that's already gone down. Stands to reason, since our last couple of issues had nothing to do with this story. I wonder if these recaps are included in the trade collection. Like, not the anthologies, but the actual New Mutants trade, assuming that there is one, of course. Um, Now, all the new we get here is that Bobby bought the Guthrie Tot an expensive present to remain in Izzy and Sam's good graces. Uh, And we're also reminded that they're currently working for Gladiator to safely transport Deathbird back to wherever the hell they're going. We got ourselves a roll call to follow, and oh boy, it's a biggie. Let's do this. Karma, Wolfsbane, Mondo, Cypher, Mirage, Sunspot, Chamber, Magic, Smasher, Cannonball, Gladiator, Mentor, Oracle, and Deathbird. Then two pages of credits to help your humble host catch his breath. Back to comics. We're in the Shi'ar throne world here. Um, And actually, you know, before we get into it, I swear I never spell the word, the word Shi'ar the same way twice in a row. Uh, that, <laughs> that damn apostrophe has this nasty habit of hopping vowels. Uh, you know, sometimes it's S-H apostrophe I-A-R. Other times it's S-H-I apostrophe A-R. And I know that it's S-H-I apostrophe A-R. That's right. But damned if I can stay consistent when I'm typing. Anyway, Gladiator's being briefed by his counsel, mentor, and oracle. Uh, you know, they... We find out here Deathbird's on her way, there's got a couple of couple of jump things to do, and uh, shouldn't be too long before she arrives. Now, after filling the Magister in, Oracle sneaks away to a far-off room to give the skinny to, well, a gaggle of Shi'ar Death Commandos. You see, she wants them to kill Deathbird, and anyone with her. So yeah, well, looks like we got ourselves some trouble. Now, it's uh, worth noting that the Shi'ar Death Commandos look... Like wildly generic Marvel aliens? Like, like one of them looks like a hulked-up scroll with a metal plate on its head, so there's that. I, I guess this is the sort of trouble you run into when you make all the bad guys good guys, right? Um, this is sort of thing I was worried about. Well, maybe not so much worried about, but maybe like bracing for when we started this X-Lapse journey all those weeks ago. And also, you know, Hickman villains are kind of generic. Uh, at least none of these have antlers, though. So At least as far as I can tell. Anyway, info page time, so let's waste a couple of pages meeting these boilerplate bad guys who we'll probably never see again. 
We start with Black Cloak, who's the commander, and uh, we find out he's got a spear and a containment cloak. And the latter sort of sounds like it has the power of the actual, you know, the character cloak, you know, cloak and dagger. Uh, Floor is the field leader, and this is the war scroll, and he has an ethical reason for not eating solid food. So, okay. Uh, Devo, and uh, I'd say please tell me he's got a whip, but he doesn't. He just has a force field that emits digestive fluid, so he also has trouble eating solid food, but not for ethical reasons. Hypernova is a failed Shi'ar guardian. Crate underwent, underwent surgery to become a bird of prey, and he looks like a bird. Offset is a mantis-like insectoid. Sega, now Sega, the bio for Sega is written in like gray text rather than the standard black. And we find out that Sega is a cowardly gas cloud. Shell is an orthoxolith. Orthoxolith, yeah, it's a rock alien. You know, kind of, kind of looks thingish, but you know, you know, rocky, craggy. And then we got Warshock. Warshot, an exiled Cree weapons master. So let's uh, let's parse this a little bit. Okay, we have another book in this line called X Men, and in it we have Orcus, a group comprised of members of other groups. Right? We know that there's there's Shield guys in there, there's AIM guys in there, there's all, all the all the Marvel acronym teams. They they've got members in this Orcus. We also got a book called X Force, and we have Zeno, which is a group group comprised of members of other groups. Now in New Mutants, we have the Shi'ar Death Commandos, a group comprised of members of other groups. Alrighty then. Back to comics one day later. We're on board the shuttle with the New Mutants, and we get an aside with Chamber and Mondo, uh, which, you know, as a Generation X guy, I both really like this and and sort of don't understand at the same time. Um, Chamber and Mondo, if I'm remembering right, they weren't like ever best pals or anything. Um, and Mondo was only with the team for like a cup of coffee before betraying them. Maybe this is like one of those any familiar face sorts of sort of situations. Like, like you remember heading into homeroom on the first day of school and like you do that like weird visual scan of the room trying to see like a single friendly face. I, mean, I was not very popular in high school. I know it sounds shocking, but uh, that's what I would do. I, anytime I'd on the first day of school and all my classes, I would try to like scan. It's like, is there anybody here who? Who wouldn't want to, you know, shove me in a locker? You know, <laughs> is there anybody here who would, uh, who'd be able to stomach more than a minute with me? So, uh, I wonder if it's that sort of a thing. Though, if that is the case, it kind of discounts the time that Jono's spent as an actual X-Man over the years. I mean, he's worked with the New Mutants contingent far more than he ever worked with Mondo. Oh well, I'll just give it a thumbs up for being Generation X-centric, and I'll try to stop thinking about it so hard. Now, Mondo and Chamber, they chat about their new teammates, and Mondo really isn't sh- quite sure what to make of them. He thinks Ilyan is an animal, and he doesn't trust Doug. Speaking of Doug, we shift scenes over to a control panel where he's being admonished by Cannonball's nag of a wife for wondering aloud if he should send an access code to the upcoming Stargate. From here, we pop over to Sam and Berto, and they're having themselves a chat. Now, you see, Bobby really wants to do something, and Sam ain't convinced that it's all that great an idea. You see, he wants to go chat up the old deadly bird. Yeah, Roberto's a leg guy, and, well, Deathbird's got two of them. Smasher saunters over to suck the life and oxygen out of the scene. What a horrible character. Uh, Bobby ultimately decides that, hey, he's a good-looking dude. He's got a lot of things going for him. Ms. Bird would be lucky to talk with him, and so he makes his approach. He introduces himself, and he kind of rattles off some of his details. You know, he's rich, 
He's got these awesome sun-based superpowers. And she responds by saying she's not rich, she's wealthy. And I think that's a Chris Rock bit, isn't it? Uh, now, Bobby looks on the bright side and he thanks her for not only being into him for his money, which was a pretty cute way to come back to that. Unfortunately, this conversation is cut short by the arrival of our Shi'ar Death Commandos. We join Black Cloak in his control room where he tells the Skrull guy that he's sort of kind of changing the rules a little bit here. He, you know, he's supposed to kill Deathbird and everyone with her, but he wants Deathbird actually brought to him alive because he wants to have the honor of killing her himself. So, you know, the plan will have the same ending, just with a little bit of a maybe risky sort of tweak, right? Now, back to the new muse, uh, the elders, you know, not the Gen X people. Uh, they gather for a status report, and Cannonball isn't sure exactly what's happening just yet. Smasher, who just yelled at Doug for daring to think, tells him to go ahead and do whatever he wants to do with the console. So he taps in, he's able to deduce that the Shi'ar commandos are headed there to kill everyone on the ship in order to cover up their killing Deathbird. You see, now this is a cool bit. The Shi'ar are a little bit trepidatious about having another Neramani on the throne, which is really an interesting bit about Shi'ar culture and also maybe perhaps a commentary on there being like a ruling class to begin with, which is decently interesting food for thought. Now Magic declares that, hey, this ain't a fight, it's a battle. And since she is a Krakoan captain, now she's given the orders. Cannonball doesn't quite understand this whole captain deal, which is a neat bit because, hey, he doesn't live on Krakoa, he doesn't know it. Now Magic sends Danny and Rain to the docking bay to meet with the incoming boarding party. And then asks Karma to have Mondo and Chamber meet the rest of them there as well. Bobby, Smasher, and Sam are told to keep guarding over Deathbird, and then Magic soul swords away to greet the other boarding party. So I, I guess they're they're coming at him from both ends here. That's fine. One thing I want to say here before we continue is, I feel like uh, poor Danny's getting jobbed out here. You know this uh, when this book started, you know the first issue of uh, this volume of New Mutants, I thought this was going to be like Danny and uh, Sunspot's book, but. Yeah, poor Danny. She's just a uh, she's just kind of a background character at this point. It's very strange. So, Karma sends a call to arms to Mondo and Chamber, and they ignore it. They choose instead to sit back and sip their space drinks, which really gives us a uh, 1990s teens a bad look. We next pop over to Magic, who's greeting the first batch of intergalactic interlopers, and it's the Scroll guy with another two. I don't know which ones. Magic starts by propositioning all three. And this bit is weird and kind of try-hard. She asks them all if they'd like to make out with her. They all say no, except for the chick, naturally. Naturally, you know. Unfortunately, the girl doesn't mix work with play, so she can't do anything about it anyway. Magic says that's too bad because she's, uh, she's only there to fight or, well, the other F-word. So she wants to fight or her. I tell you, I'm loving this issue so far, but this is really cringy. Um, she asks if any of these three are human, and nope, none of them are. Which means for magic, it's all systems go. She can do whatever she wants to them without worrying about breaking Krakoan law. Not to be a semantic dick or anything, but I thought the law was kill no man, not necessarily kill no human. But uh, I ain't gonna argue with magic. From here, we jump over to Karma, Mirage, and Wolfsbane, who are dealing with another bunch of commandos. Karma commands the rock beast to punch itself over and over and over again, which is pretty cute. She also commands it to say something nice, 
to which it compliments her on her shiny leg. Karma then has the monster KO itself, after which she does a V for Victory anime girl pose. And I'm not kidding. We pop back over to the commando ship, where Black Cloak, realizing that they're they're fighting a losing battle here, gives the command to just, screw it, blow up the ship. Bada-bing, bada-boom, the new mutant's craft goes, kaboom. We wrap up with Mondo and Chamber floating through space, and a narration box doing a play on that whole, you're probably wondering how we're going to get out of this one. And we're out of here. So, uh, we get a cliffhanger, and next issue, we're back on the damn farm. So we gotta wait two issues to find out what happens here. Oh, boy. Uh, but next episode, we have X-Force number five, which will hopefully feel a little less X-Forced than issue number four. But first, let's talk about what we got here. And oh, boy, I really, really, really enjoyed this one. Um, which, I mean... It makes it all the more aggravating that we're going to be headed back to the cartel and the farm story next issue. Um, I'm really loving how every non-Smasher character here is being portrayed. Um, This might be like the Dawn of X book that feels the most like home to me. And that's coming from a fellow who didn't read the original New Mutants run until like 15, 20 years after it came out. Um, This is just so well done and isn't overly reliant on the whole post-Hox-Pox trappings. This is really just a group of friends on an adventure, and it's it's all the better for it. We don't we're not talking about all the stuff going on in Krakoa outside of you know a mention of the captains. This just feels like it could be, it could be any any time. This is just a timeless sort of story, and uh, and the fact that it's a space story and I can tolerate it, really speaks to the talents of uh, of Mister Hickman, and and Mister Reese here because the art is just ridiculously beautiful. Um, now, this might be the first issue with Deathbird in it that I really enjoyed. Um, I, I, I feel like having her as a sort of aloof noble is a fun take. Um, her sadly brief uh, back and forth with Sunspot was also really cute. I like the idea that the Shi'ar citizens aren't completely on board with the Naramani gaining, you know, or regaining political clout. I don't remember what happened to Lalandra exactly here, but... Uh, Last I knew, I thought she was beloved by her people, right? I, I very well might be forgetting something. Um, maybe something was revealed during that, like, Ed Brubaker 400-part Rise and Fall of the Shi'ar Empire arc. I remember not hating that, but I also remember it took, like, 25 years to tell. So I don't know that I'll be going back to that anytime soon. This is a cool bit, though. I like the bit. Uh, also, having one of Gladiator's council members be part of the rebellion, I like that, too. I thought that was pretty cool. Now, as for the commandos who were enlisted, I mean, they're nothing to get excited about. They're not not good, not bad. <laughs> they're really just cannon fodder that we wasted two perfectly good pages talking about. Um, I mentioned it during the synopsis, but I really want there to be actual bad guys sometime soon. Um, not just these groups within groups, especially not at this rate. Half the Dawn of X line are dealing with these similar sorts of groups now. Um... I can't see how story beats this similar can all be allowed to occur at once. Don't we have, like, a head of X and, like, a half-dozen editors looking at this stuff? Unless they're all going to wind up being entangled together, which... I mean, that that, that is a way they could go, but I kind of hope they don't. Uh, let's talk about some of our characters here. Because outside of uh, Danny being, you know, kind of jobbed out, uh, this was a, a wonderful little character piece for, uh, for, a lot of our, uh, for a lot of our folks here. 
Uh, I really liked Magic taking control of the situation. Now, as a Kerkoan captain, I appreciated her see her seeing her take her position seriously. I wasn't quite sure what it entailed, so I'm you know, super happy to see her laying down the law. What I wasn't super happy about was to see that cringe-as-hell chat she had with the aliens, fight or the other F-word. I mean, come on, really? This feels like lazy-ass writing that is just begging to be retweeted or retumbled or whatever. Yeah, don't write for the memes, you're better than that. This, this was really try-hard stuff here. Uh, Jono and Mondo having their Gen X aside was... A little confusing, as I kind of alluded to during the synopsis. Um, I can get them sort of gravitating to one another, while at the same time, I wonder why Chamber is acting uncomfortable around the others. You know, Chamber hasn't really gone away like Mondo did. If anything, he should feel more comfortable around his, you know, his other group than Mondo himself. I mean, Mondo, he betrayed Generation X, and he's been gone longer than he's been around. I, I probably, I'm definitely thinking about it too hard. Uh, I figure, like, if this was Skin or Sink, I'd, I'd see it. Because, you know, Chamber, Skin, and Sink... Or Chamber and Skin, they, they went, you know, hitchhiking together for a little bit there. I mean, they, they're they pals. Mondo and Chamber, I just don't see it. I do like them sort of putting up a wall between them and the original New Mutants. But, I mean, it still it feels, it feels a little unnatural, despite the fact that I like it. And, oh, are they dead on the last page? Would it even matter if they were? Here's the thing. <laughs> this is this is the thing that I'm not getting about these Dawn of X books here. This is one of the things I'm not getting. We're basically told straight away that deaths don't matter anymore, right? I mean, that's we can all agree. We have a resurrection process in place, and we've already seen a whole bunch of dead X-Men brought back to life, right? We've seen this. So why... Why are we still having cliffhangers with dead or almost dead X-Men? I mean, if we're writing to be smarter and to shift the stakes, shouldn't we also be writing smarter cliffhangers? How many books since we started this have ended with mutant deaths? I mean, just last episode, Apocalypse died. Wolverine and Quentin Quire died a couple episodes before that, and now Chamber and Mondo and maybe the rest of the New Mutants team altogether. If we're really going to change things up, maybe let's go an issue or two without a death cliffhanger, right? Uh, now, that said, I am an old-school comics fan, so I'm kind of used to this sort of cliffhanger, and I'm kind of expecting them. I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. Maybe just a, a thing that is. But uh, I really think, you know, th- I think this whole Dawn of X, this Hox Pox Docs run is being looked at as being you know smarter than your average X book. And we're doing these... These these death cliffhangers that, even before this, had no stakes. Now they even have less. I don't know why we're relying on them. Uh, let's talk art. Well, duh, Rod Reese remains ridiculous. I just love his work. Such an amazing fit for this book. Just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful stuff. Overall, despite a couple of very minor complaints, I absolutely adored this issue. I mean, is it Bizarro Day, an X-Men in Space story that I loved? Hmm. Now, I, I loved it. Can't wait for the next part. But unfortunately, it looks like we're going to have to... I don't want to go back to the farm. I don't want to go back to the farm. But uh, we have to. So next time we do New Mutants, we're going to be on the damn farm. <laughs> but uh, that's all I got to say about New Mutants number uh, five. And... Uh, Let's hop into the mailbag here before we go. 
We're going to start with Damien, and this is talking about X-Men number four. He says, as I was listening to you say the U.S. ambassador as, as villain was a safe target, it reminded me of House of X number one. I went searching through that issue and quickly noticed that both Riley Marshall and Ming-Na Wen are from that issue. That means that Magneto didn't really didn't need to notice Riley fiddling with his earpiece, as this was the guy who threatened him with a gun. House of X number one established that both of them were there primarily for their own interests and weren't really interested in representing their nations. I know Hickman is trying to reward close reading, but he should have put on the page that Magneto knows that Riley isn't really representing the U.S., and that Ming-Na isn't really representing China. In House of X number one, Esme says Ming-Na is there for, pharm- for his pharmaceutical company, and Riley is an ex-Shield and Sword Black Ops agent. There's some other affiliation, but he's fighting me. I'm sure this is deliberately vague, so we can place him in Orcus or Zeno or wherever. Now, you said Ming-Na Wen, which made me, like, flip through the issue. It's like, the, the woman who did the voice for Mulan? <laughs> I thought that's who we were talking about. I tell you, during the uh, mid-90s, she was on this horrible show called The Single Guy. And, uh, well, was the only reason I watched a horrible show called The Single Guy. A second, this is a great catch. Uh, I assumed Riley was the same dude who was packing heat in the Krakoa tour, but totally forgot the cuckoo mentioning that, you know, about his third unreadable affiliation. Um, I'm guessing he's probably going to be revealed as tied to one of our many composite secret organizations. So I guess we'll stay tuned for that. Uh, Damien continues, I'm completely useless to help with the reading order of the forthcoming issues, as I dropped down to Marauders and X-Men only from about issue 6, and then I gave up on X-Men from around issue 9. I do know from reviews that the Empire series takes place between two issues of X-Men, and apparently that's clearly stated on the next issue box. The X-Men and Fantastic Four book is not edited by the X-Team, but my understanding is that the whole series has to happen before Marauders number 6, although it was mainly published later. Generally speaking, I would stick with release dates. I've got to say that I was impressed with the number fours that X-Men was delayed to allow for Xavier's resurrection. I like that kind of linked storytelling. It makes me, it takes me back to when Wolverine would disappear for a couple of months to appear in a limited series. And that is helpful. I won't have to sweat where to place Empire. And, uh, you know, I, I guess we can play X-Men Fantastic Four by ear at the moment, or if I can maybe cram it in before uh, Marauders number six. That's not a bad place for it. Um, at least it's a place for it, because I don't know what's happening. But uh, I still have a few days before I got to actually assign an order. So that's, uh, that's, you know, that's something, I guess. Now, I didn't even consider that X-Men was delayed to allow for uh, Professor X's resurrection in X-Force. That's another great catch. And uh, like you, I I do so miss those days, Uh, even though I actually wasn't around for them when Wolverine would actually disappear from the book because he had his own miniseries adventure going on at the same time. Imagine that, way back when we'd only get, like, one editor credited and they could actually pinpoint just about every character. Nowadays, we've got, you know, three or four editors at the very least, and those are the only ones that are credited on every single book, and everything's all over the place. Who knows? Uh, Damien continues, I I continue to wonder why Lionel Yu is drawing this book. It pretty much plays up all his weaknesses. He should be drawing a book that's all action and explosions, not people eating dinner. My memory is that he gets a story more suited for his skills in a few issues, but I wish they'd give him a more appropriate book for his talents. I definitely agree. You is an awkward pick for a book of this tone. And I mean, I've said it before, and I'm sure I will say it again. I like you's work, but I always kind of cringe when I find out he's coming on a book that I'm reading. I can't, I can't explain it. Uh, I like his work. It's 
maybe just like it better over there. I don't know. Uh, Damien wraps up. My ranking for the issue fours is the same as yours. I know I was highly critical of Excalibur, but it did what it did well, even if I disagreed with it. And yeah, placing Excalibur in the number two slot for the week, it was like one of those situations where, like, say... Say we, like, anthropomorphized all the books here, and we had them stepped up to a line, and then all the other books took two steps backwards. <laughs> you know? I dug it. Excalibur, that is. But, you know, in a stronger month of X books, it wouldn't have been anywhere near the top of the pile. You know? It's just that the other books were so lackluster in comparison that Excalibur, you know, won by not crapping the bed as bad as the other books. So... There's that. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much, Damien. It's always great to hear from you. Um, next, we have uh, a letter from Al Sedano, and he's talking about Powers of X number four. He says, It's been a few days, but I finally had time to get another issue read and episode listened to. Also, my copies of the Dawn of X volumes one and two have arrived, and I'm looking forward to seeing what happens once we start focusing on the different groups, teams, branches of government. I guess I'll find out in five episodes. And yes, I'm definitely looking forward to hearing your thoughts here, and I'm also, selfishly, very curious about how you're going to receive the ending of Hoxpox here, since you are reading it in a collected edition. Folks might remember that I was more satisfied with the penultimate chapter of Hoxpox than the actual conclusion. I, I was very critical of the, the you know, 12th chapter. I just felt it was uh, anticlimactic, and uh, it didn't... It didn't do everything I wanted it to do, which, I mean, I shouldn't get mad at it for not being what I wanted it to be, um, but, yeah, I was I was building it up <laughs> a lot harder in my head. Um, Al continues, but for now, we're still in Hoxpoxville, so some thoughts on this one. First of all, I like the, your idea that X to the zero power doesn't necessarily mean it's actually taking place in year one, but in the era before Hoxpox. So it could be any time up till then, and it makes more sense that way. Yeah, and that was that was just me spitballing. I was trying to make everything, you know, kind of fit in my head. Um, folks who've been listening from the beginning, they might recall how, like, I was really spinning my wheels there, trying to come up with ways where, like, all of X continuity was still, you know, in continuity. I was really, uh, I was really worried about that. I was worried that, you know, um, different bits and pieces of stories were going to be relegated to, uh, to you know, Mora Life 2 or Mora Life 3, and maybe the Executioner's song happened in Mora's third life. It's, it felt very, I don't know, it felt like we had a lot of weird back doors. And from what we're seeing, I, I don't think that we actually, you know, used any of those back doors, thankfully. So I think uh, as far as I'm looking at it now, and I could be completely wrong, but I think everything happened. So, there's that. Uh, now, Al continues. Bar Sinister. Now, is that all made of ruby, or is it ruby quartz? I remember that Sinister has a particular vulnerability to Cyclops's optic blast, though I don't know if that still counts. And yeah, I feel like this imagery was definitely supposed to evoke thoughts of ruby quartz. Um, either that or ruby slippers, because if I'm remembering right, uh, Bar Sinister did look like a red version of the Emerald City. Which, you know, if those theories about Thunderbird's red shoes hold any water, might make even more sense. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, Al continues. Krakoa as the lawn of the Jean Grey school and Wolverine and the X-Men. I remember that too, but I thought that was the son of Krakoa. Though I'm not sure how paternity works for a living island. Was this the first example, retroactively, of a Krakoan seed? And, uh, you know, I'd have to reread Wolverine and the X-Men, or 
Hell, I'll just look at the wiki. Why not? It looks like the Krakoa of the Jean Grey school was actually the grandson of Krakoa. And it also looks like the last time we saw this Krakoa was in the Marvel Legacy era Generation X, which was something that I dropped like a hot rock. But I'll probably be hunting them down in the near future. It's the uh, the life of an addict. Um, I do wonder if uh, they will make mention of... Uh, I'm sure... I'm sure there's probably a uh, Krakoan gateway by where the Jean Grey school was. So, um, uh, this wasn't in Central Park, was it? I know there was a school in Central Park. Maybe it was there. So maybe we'll find out if uh, that Krakoa was a result of a uh, of a seed of some sort. I mean, for all we know, the, the whole planet could be covered with Krakoas before long. That's, uh, that's definitely interesting to consider. Uh, back to Al, he says, Warlock. I know he was back in the New Mutant series that came out around the time of Ex Necrotia. No idea what his current status is. Maybe he's bonded to Cypher again. So it's not his arm that's infected, but that's actually Warlock. And I still don't know the answer to this one. Um, I mean, relatively speaking, Doug's getting a decent amount of panel time, right? I mean, he's the, he's the you know, liaison between the X-Men and Krakoa. He's the translator. He's, we're seeing him a lot. And I feel like we know less about him now than ever before. For for the amount of time we're seeing him, we're not getting much from him. Uh, Al continues, The story about Apocalypse and Krakoa was interesting. The whole thing with the sword makes me wonder if this is going to be set up for X of Swords. I'm actually a bit interested in that now, if that ends up being the case. And uh, that's just the beginning, because uh, there's going to be a lot more sword imagery coming. So... uh, (laughs) Be ready for it. Um, I think that the sword, you know, X of Swords was definitely already in the plans uh, from from you know Jump Street because we're getting a lot of sword imagery. Uh, Al continues. As for your question about how long this will last, I have no idea. But I've accepted that comics, the big two at least, now are no longer the ongoing story of a character or a team. So I'm no longer permanently invested in buying my comics with that in mind. The only exceptions are books from for my Thanos and my Warlock Thanos show and The Legion. I now just buy them when there's a take I like and I enjoy it for as long as it lasts. And that's uh, that's the very healthy way to look at it. <laughs> that's the uh, that's the well-adjusted human way to handle it. But uh, I'm anything but. I get too tangled in the scenery and I get too... Uh, I, I, what are the, I think I think maybe butthurt would be the way to put it. <laughs> I get very, very annoyed when, when you know, when things change. Because, I mean, comics are in a constant state of change. But, yeah, it feels like, it feels like everything's being written as, uh, as seasons now rather than serials. And, I mean, that's just, uh, that's just current year comics, I guess. I got to either deal with it or not. And uh, since I'm still here, I guess I'm dealing with it. Uh, Al wraps up with, uh, hey, feedback. Nice to see I wasn't the only one who thought of Hitchhiker's Guide when it came to the text page. And yeah, a few people have mentioned that. I I have never read Hitchhiker's Guide, so I couldn't say. But uh, yes, there have been a few people who have said that. So uh, Al wraps up with, talk to you after episode nine. So thank you so much for following along. And I, I again, I can't tell you how cool it is to have someone who's still in the Hoxpox era at this point. Because... Uh, it's it's just it's putting me on the other side of the fence. So you're learning all this stuff that I've already sort of learned, and I get to see how you're you know how you're getting it at first blush, just like I did not too long ago. So that's really cool. 
So thank you so much. And uh, we'll wrap up with a, a tweet from Ed Moore. While the uh, Actually, Ed and Al are, are fellows I'm going to be doing projects with in the very near future. So that's pretty cool. So Ed, he sent a supportive tweet regarding my reviewing process that I discussed a few episodes back when... I don't remember their name, but somebody wrote in and asked me to enlighten them to my <laughs> reviewing process, which I took to uh, I took to reason that uh, that maybe I said something that got under their skin. They never replied, so I don't know if that's the case at all. It might have been just someone, maybe somebody wanted me to write something for them. I don't know, but uh, I did talk about my review process, and it's funny because um, uh, Ed mentioned like, "Hey, you know, you do you. It's your thing. You do your thing," and very, very supportive, and I definitely appreciate it. I second guessed even including that. I, I, I second guess everything I do, whether it's a show. Uh, the, the sentence that's coming out of my mouth right now, I'm second-guessing, you know? If it's a show, if it's a blog post, I'm second-guessing everything I do, and it's very, very stressful. So when I recorded that episode where I talked about my reviewing process, I remember being in bed that night, and I was like, I should probably edit that out, because <laughs> it was just... It was a little self-indulgent. It was also I didn't. I was worried that maybe I was a little snippy. I was worried that maybe I should just let it not let it be, you know. But uh, I don't know. This is a it's kind of a sore subject for me because I have been taken to task before, and I've been I've gotten some pretty uh, vicious clapback from um, from reviews. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of angry appeal to motive. And I, I guess it's it's easy to fall to appeal to motive when you're uh, trying to critique a criticism, you know. Uh, case in point, and this is the this is the example I always give. Um, I was reviewing the uh, DC young animal book Mother Panic, and I don't know if I've told the story on this show before. I might have, but uh, here we go again. I reviewed it, and uh, the first several issues I did not like it, and uh, I told. I told you all that I started a seven. When I have to when I have to rate something between one and ten, I started a seven and I go up or down. And I believe for the first couple of issues of Mother Panic, I just stayed at seven because I do also grade on a curve because I realize not everything is going to be written for me, and I also know where my biases are. I think if you're going to call yourself a reviewer, you need to know what your biases are. Um, if it's something that I'm knee-jerk not going to like, but I've accepted a job in reviewing it, I need to take into account that this is not being written for me. But how would somebody who likes this sort of story take it? So with Mother Panic, it started at 7, and I think I kept it at 7. I might have gone to a, down to a 6.5 or might have even gone up to a 7.5. But we're living in a world where it's 10 out of 10 or nothing. Uh, I have friends who, uh, who've been have been contacted directly by some very prominent comic book writers for giving for daring to give them an 8 or a 9 out of 10 instead of a 10 out of 10. It's a this is a monster we've created and uh, you know those chickens come home to roost when uh, the creators don't get what they want. So I gave this mother panic book a 7 and suddenly I woke up one morning and my website was just bombarded with comments. Got all these new comments. I thought like wow, maybe Google finally found me. And <laughs> And people are telling me, are writing in to tell me how brilliant I am. But no, no, it was uh, some very threatening, uh, very vicious, 
very uh, expletive-laden messages. I'm guessing it's all from the same one or two people, probably, but calling me every ist in the book, because Mother Panic was written by a woman. And it's actually a woman who I like a lot. I like her writing a lot, and I actually came around to Mother Panic as well. But uh, I was called every ist, and uh, really got under my skin. I almost just stopped, you know, talking about comics altogether. I just, I couldn't take the heat. And uh, it just really bothered me. So I try to be as transparent as possible. If I start to feel like someone's questioning uh, my integrity or honesty, it's just like, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not grading anything. I'm just telling you what I think about it. You know, that's kind of where I fall. <laughs> but, uh, but I definitely appreciate the support. And I apologize if I went on too long. I just, this is one of those sore spots for me. Um, it's definitely something that, uh, that I exert way too much energy worrying about. I worry about everything as it is, but I, I certainly worry about that as well. But I think that's where we'll leave it. If uh, anybody would like to get a hold of me, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. Show notes and the stuff at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com, xlaps.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com, 90s X-Men on Facebook, that page on Tumblr. The audio archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. So, I guess that's where we'll leave it today. Next up, X-Force. So looking... I was going to say looking forward to that, but I'm not sure I am. (laughs) We'll see how it goes. Uh, One last giant thank you to everyone for still hanging out here. We're about to break into the 40s, which... I mean, sitting at my kitchen island on September 1st, writing the notes for the first episode, I never thought... (laughs) We'd be up to 40, so there we are, and I owe so much of that to you guys, so thank you all so, so much. But till we do break into the 40s, I will uh, talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 58 of X-Last, where we're finally going to wrap up the other 
New Mutant story, the original New Mutant story. Um, after the time we spent on the farm and getting that story all resolved, it's finally time to uh, to get the kids home from Shi'ar space, and uh, we will do so right away in New Mutants Volume 4, Number 7, which had an April 2020 cover date. The story's called Spoilers, written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by Rod Reese. Letters VCs Travis Lanham, designs Tom Muller, edits Bisa White Sabolski, cover price $3.99, went on sale February 19th, 2020. And we open with our, uh, well, we're used to getting a recap segment from Sunspot, right? Uh, it's sort of customary, but this time it's not so much a recap. Uh, Bobby actually tells us a whole darn story. So uh, let's, let's see what we got here. Addressing our cliffhanger from issue 5, uh, we find out that Magic saved the two, quote, do-nothing Gen Xers, to which I say, hey, I resemble that remark. Uh, then some of the New Mutants were taken hostage by the Shi'ar Death Commandos. They were tortured a bunch, especially Doug, since he cries the most. We do learn something here. Doug reveals that one of his passwords is butterscotch puddin' with no G. Then Deathbird arrives and makes the save. She decapitates one of the Commandos and then makes out with... Sunspot. Well, that this is his story. While he tells it, however, Deathbird corrects the record. The, she says they only kissed one time. Now, the New Mutants are reunited, and they went on to continue their way to the throne world, or wherever it is that they're headed. Uh, from here, we get a cute little scene. Uh, might be a touch too Deadpool-y for some. They're really dependent on your mileage. Where Roberto is wrapping up his recap when he's interrupted by Danny Moonstar, who informs him that he just ins- he just spoiled an entire issue's worth of story. Now, Berto is confused, since as far as he knew, he just told the story that occurred in issue number six of New Mutants, to which Danny informs him that their story didn't continue in New Mutants number six. That was more of the farm stuff. Well, Sunspot's shocked and quite annoyed that there are New Mutant stories going on that don't feature him. He turns to the reader and lets out a what-the-f... So uh, how about a what-the-f roll call time? It's a, it's a biggie. We got a lot of characters here. Karma, Wolfsbane, Mondo, Cypher, Mirage, Sunspot, Chamber, Magic, Smasher, Cannibal, Gladiator, Mentor, Oracle, Deathbird, and Xandra. Now we can fit all those characters on one page, right? But somehow we still need two for the credits. And I'm sorry, you must all be really tired of me harping on about that by now. But uh, it's there and it's annoying. Okay, back to comics. We hop over to Chandelar, Chandelar, wherever this is, where Xandra is waiting for the arrival of her Aunt Deathbird so she could begin her um, royalty training, or whatever it is. Oracle tells her about how over the next few years it's going to be important for Xandra to to learn to trust her counsel. Which is funny, coming from the person who sent the Death Commandos out to murder Deathbird, but we won't worry about that just yet. Xander asks Gladiator what he thinks of her aunt, to which he refers to her as a, quote, bird of prey. Sort of a nothing-happening scene, but uh, it's there and we'll talk about it anyway. Okay, we jump to four cycles later, where Deathbird and the New Mutants arrive on Chandelar. We get a scene with Karma, Wolfsbane, and Magic as they watch over a Death Commando hostage they'd taken. Now, this is the gaseous Sega. Uh, It's just actually gas. Um... He's being contained in a sphere, which uh, Rain licks, which is kind of weird, before becoming very bored and scurrying away, which is also kind of weird, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about Rain as we as we work through this. Now, Doug pops open over to question Sega, but he ain't wanting to talk. 
And he's quite glib about it, too. He asks the kids, what, what are they going to possibly do to him to make him talk? To which, Doug reveals that the containment sphere orb thing is a bit more than what it might look like. In fact, they can change the pressure of the thing and transform Sega into a liquid or solid if they decide, and uh, the latter of which scares the bejesus out of the baddie, so he's primed and ready to talk. So we jump ahead one cycle later, where Karma reveals to the team what she's learned from Sega. Basically, they're walking into a trap. Now, Deathbird's ticked off, and she promises to kill someone. Doug reveals that the Imperial Guard is actually in on this scheme, and now Smasher is ticked, not that that's anything new to any of us here, and uh, now she promises to kill someone. She still really sucks, though, and this issue would have been a lot better without this panel in it. One cycle later, Deathbird and company are where they need to be. Uh, they're in that throne room, that big room where, where the people are. Uh, Xandra is very pleased to see her aunt. Uh, Deathbird says that their training rega- begins right this very second, and the first lesson is to uh, have no mercy for traitors. And with that, she hurls her spear directly at Oracle's heart. Now, the spear is caught by Gladiator, who throws it right back at Deathbird. Now, the spear is then caught by Bobby, who proceeds to snap the spear over his knee. Of course, this was originally Deathbird's spear, her favorite, in fact. Uh, So we get a brief mea culpa here from uh, Roberto, which is kind of cute. Then, a fight. Not your garden variety fight, though. This isn't Major X, so we're not going to spend the latter half of this issue with the punchy punch. Instead, what we get is an info page, which treats the entire kerfuffle as a Dungeons & Dragons campaign, dice rolls, and all. So, like, we're supposed to play this battle out, eliminating combatants until only one team is left standing. Makes me wish I had some physical dice handy, but I don't. So, uh, I suppose we'll have to settle for the dice roller at random.org. Okay, so let's uh, let's do this here. We're going to have ourselves a battle. Now, round one, we get the roll call for the mutants and the guardians here. So, we get, for the mutants... A roll of one is Mirage, two is Smasher, three is Mondos, four is Chamber, five is Wolfsbane, and six is Karma. For the Guardians, a roll of one is Manta, two is Earthquake, three is Quasar, four is Starbolt, five is Flashfire, and six is Hussar. So, round one, Smasher versus Flashfire. And I swear I didn't set this up, but uh, Smasher loses right away. Flashfire fives to fight another round. So roll two, Mirage versus Flashfire, and the winner of that is Mirage. Round three, Mirage versus Quasar. Mirage wins that one too. Roll four is uh, Wolfsbane versus Manta, and Manta wins that one, so Wolfsbane is out of here. Roll five is Chamber versus Manta, and Manta wins that one as well, so Chamber's gone. Roll six, Mirage versus Manta. Mirage wins. Roll seven, Mondo versus Hussar. Hussar wins. Round eight, Karma versus Starbolt. Karma wins. Round nine, Mirage versus Hussar. Hussar wins. Round ten, Karma versus Earthquake. Karma wins. And we're going all the way down to the wire here. We got one person left on both teams here. So round 11 is Karma versus Hussar. And our winner is Karma. So the the uh, Imperial Guard has been KO'd for this first round, and we have one new mutant left standing. So, an entire team's gone, so it's time for round two, where we introduce the final three participants per side. Now, for the mutants, one is Cannonball, two is Sunspot, and three is Magic. 
And uh, these guys, if I'm reading this right, will actually be roles of two, three, and four, since Karma is still alive and she will be number one. That's how I'm going to play it anyway. I have zero experience in the D&D department. I'm just doing my best. Now, across the aisle, we have the Guardians here. A roll of one is Mentor, two is Oracle, and three is Gladiator. So, let's go. So, roll 12. Cannonball versus Mentor. Cannonball wins. Round 13. Cannonball versus Gladiator. A draw, which, if we refer back to our rules, means both both uh, combatants are eliminated. So, Cannonball and Gladiator, they KO'd each other. They're both out of here. And uh, round 14, the final is Magic vs. Oracle, and Magic wins. So, the New Mutants win. But, before we can wrap up, we gotta scream the word Deathbird. Which, uh, I guess that's part of the rules here. Which, if I still had my normal, versatile, unallergy-written written pipes, I'd uh, do it for you, I promise. But, uh, for now, I'll just say it a little bit louder. Deathbird! There you go. Back to comics, where Xandra is calling everyone to stop fighting. Now, Deathbird wants Oracle to die for her Kahootin and Kavortin. Which Oracle, when pressed, admits to being a party to. She's got nothing to hide. Thing of it is, she really just wanted Gladiator to be put on the throne. So she's got her loyalties and yada yada yada. <clears throat> now Chandra, or Xandra, wanting to keep the peace as best she can, decides to not only spare Oracle, but to install her as her second advisor alongside Auntie Deathbird. So everything's all hunky-dory and the new mutants are good to go home. Just as soon as Mondo is told where to plant the Krakoan gateway seed, that is. The place they choose is Sam and Izzy's apartment, which is fair enough. Now we join the new mutants at Sam's place, where a big ol' mutant hoedown is going on. We see some notable names here. We got Wolverine, Beast, Magneto. They're all just hanging out, having a grand old time here. Now Sam's happy to have the portal, since this means his friends can visit anytime they'd like. He also reveals that... Well, he's staying in Shi'ar space. He won't be relocating his family to Krakoa. Sunspot, upon hearing this, is quite annoyed and wonders what this was all for. Uh, Sam suggests that maybe Bobby stay a while, and it turns out uh, this is an idea that our erstwhile narrator thinks might just work. Elsewhere at the party, we see Cyclops chatting up Gladiator. Now, Gladiator thanks Cyclops for all that the mutants have done and suggests that the Imperial Guard is now in their debt. Cyclops kind of shrugs it off like it's no big thing, but then he thinks of something. He's like, hey, you know, if you are indebted to us, there's a favor you can do. And uh, what he'd like is to plant another Krakoan gateway seed on a different Shi'ar planetoid. This is the moon known as Chandelure. And Gladiator gives a big ol' thumbs up, says, consider it done. All well, everything's good. We jump back to the kids where Wolfsbane is introduced to the little Majestrix and they exchange power stories. So Rain transforms into her wolf form while Xandra transforms into a ball of light, which Rain proceeds to lick. Weird. Um, Rain is then quickly bored by Xandra and rushes off to go home, which is also kind of weird. Now the mutants all proceed to head back to Krakoa, leaving us with Sam and Bobby sitting out on the balcony. Sam informs Berto that Smasher said that he can't stay with them because, you know, she's the worst. And our man's totally cool with this because, you see, he decided he'd just buy the whole damn apartment building anyway. And he's going to have a place to stay no matter what. And we learn that he bought this place since it was the, the closest building for sale to the Imperial Palace because he still has the hot pants for Deathbird. 
Sam asks him how many times he's been in love, to which, after some long mathematics, Berto replies with 12. So that's a whole lot of love. Now, Bobby celebrates the fact that he and his pal are going to get into so much space trouble, and that's where we end. That's the end of our New Mutants story here. Next episode, we are going to kick off Wave 2 with Wolverine, Volume Friggin' 7, <laughs> Number 1, and it's a big, fat issue. So uh, maybe we'll uh, we'll pack a lunch and we'll stop halfway through for, uh, for a snack. But uh, that's next episode. Let's finish up this episode by talking about everything we just learned. This was a pretty good issue, a pretty uh, solid issue. Um, well, maybe it was a little too... Deadpool-y in its attempts at comedy, breaking the fourth wall, and, I don't know, just plain old cuteness. Uh, I rather enjoyed it. I'm not sure the resolution was worth all the build-up, but, I mean, on this very show, we've read far worse, right? Um, plus, this had charm for days, so I can't be too mad at it. I'm just really not sure where we go from here. Um, out of curiosity, I flipped to the roll call page of New Mutants number 8, the next issue, and it looks like it's going to feature that other team. You know, the armor, the twins, boom, boom. So maybe we'll be checking back in with this one, this crew in number nine? I, I really don't know. But uh, let's go through the issue here. Let's start at the beginning. I dug the uh, recap gimmick. I thought it was fairly funny in a, in a meta sort of way. Also, the story that Berto shared was not something I would have wanted to dedicate an entire episode to. So to get that out of the way quickly was just fine by me. It did kind of brush off our cliffhanger from New Mutants number 5, which... I mean, why even bother with the cliffhanger then? It's... Uh, we've talked... We talked during that issue that uh, cliffhangers where death is, uh, <laughs> is the, is the worst-case scenario really don't carry a whole lot of weight in the, uh, in the post-resurrection protocol world here, but I don't know. I didn't so much mind the breaking the fourth wall aspects of this scene. Um, while I do find that gimmick to be very tired and very played out, and usually used or abused by folks who think they're being way more clever than they actually are, I thought it worked here. Um, I mean, Sunspot is basically Zack Morris, right? It worked for Zack, so it works for Berta. I'm fine with it. Uh, the revelation that they were heading into a trap worked well, despite the fact of just how weird Rain was <laughs> during this whole process. I mean, Rain was just acting weird throughout this entire issue, almost like a cartoon character or something. Very off-putting, very, very strange. Now, the scene where the New Mutants and Deathbird arrived was fun. Berto breaking the spear was pretty cute. Uh, the D&D &D thing, eh, well, well we, we kind of had fun with it, but uh, maybe it was a little bit of a cop-out. Um, I'm not sure if this was just a clever way to not have to draw a fight scene, or if this level of... Uh, Cuteness was always intended. Um, it was a decent enough gimmick. I'll give them that. Um, but I gotta tell you, I don't need or want to see anything like it again anytime soon. It was it was good once. Let's not overplay our hand. Uh, the resolution was quick and perhaps a bit too tidy, but it worked well enough. I mean, what else could we have done, right? Well, I don't think we wanted to read more issues of this. Uh, the party scene to wrap up was pretty fun. Rain's weirdness notwithstanding. I liked Cyclops and Gladiator having their chat. It makes me wonder what Scott might have planned for the Chandelure Moon. I don't think that that was just a request made in passing. I'm guessing that there was a purpose to that, and uh, it'll be eventually followed up on, I would assume. Uh, the Berto and Sam scene at the end was okay, 
But again, I mean, I'm using this word a lot to describe this issue, but it may be a little too cute. <laughs> Uh, I mean, does this mean that Sunspot's not going to be living on Krakoa for the foreseeable future? Uh, further, is this the only story arc we're going to be getting with this classic-ish team? From this point on, will it actually become that amalgamated Young Mutants book that I uh, posited the other the other episode? Not really sure how I feel about that, though it's probably not something I should exert all that much energy worrying about, because I don't know... Uh, a ding-dang thing So we'll just play it as we get it And we'll uh, we'll hope for the best Overall, fun If not a little too cute issue <laughs> And uh, I do think our Shi'ar trip Lasted just about as long As it should have um, We didn't overstay our welcome And uh, we got enough time You know, so I'm happy that it's over And uh, And yeah, had a good time with it for the most part before we cut out of here, let's dip into the mailbag here. We have one message from uh, Evan Bevins, and he's got a theory. And it is a hot take theory, which are my very favorite kinds of theories here. And he says, The remark on the episode 18 feedback about Wolverine being resurrected with adamantium and your earlier comment about Sabretooth not being the first one in stasis got me to thinking about this possibility, which may be already disproven or revealed for all I know. Evan then says that he uh, has read up to issue 6 on X-Men, Marauders, um, New Mutants, and Excalibur, and only issue 1 on Fallen Angels and X-Force. Then he continues, What if most of the mutants, or at least the core X-Men, are in stasis? And the familiar but slightly off versions... Uh, why on earth would Jean go to wear, go back to wearing the Marvel Girl costume? That might be the most unsettling change of all. Are tweaked clones. Professor X saving mutant kind by preserving them while he fixes the world. Which, wow, okay. Let's, let's, I mean, it's weird because I, I, I've been thinking about this, this comment, this theory for uh, the better part of a day now. And, uh... I, I can't like I can't let go of it at this point. I'm I'm becoming kind of obsessed with it because it almost makes too much sense in, in some ways, right? Um, now, if I unless uh, you know, hopefully I didn't butcher uh, what Evans' intent was with this theory, but he's suggesting that the main X Men are in stasis right now, and the X Men that we're seeing on the page are clones. They're tweaked clones to preserve the originals. So basically. Not risking the originals and having these these ciphers, these clones out there that we're watching. And I mean, that's a really cool theory. That's a really cool theory because even the example he gives here of Jean wearing her Marvel Girl costume. And uh, one of the things that we've been discussing a lot here is the fact that... Uh, Maybe there's a little bit of manipulation going on in the resurrection process. Maybe Xavier is is tinkering. Maybe he's playing. Maybe he's tweaking these uh, resurrectees to be a little bit more like he'd like them to be. You know, we see like weird, you know, bizarre love triangles being sort of pushed. Um, we see uh, the, like certain characters acting like Wolverine acting all you know placated and happy and playing with kids and stuff, which doesn't seem terribly Wolverine-y. I, I And it makes me wonder, I mean, here we have Jean in her Marvel Girl costume, which might just be an Xavier preference, for all we know. You know, there have been those stories in the past, whether we like them or not, that suggest that there was a, uh, a bit of a crush uh, on Jean from the uh, Professor. So, 
I mean, here we are. She's in a very classic costume that we haven't seen her wear. I'm pretty sure she hasn't worn it my entire life. I mean, I'm 40 years old. I don't think she's worn it a day that I've been alive until now. So I wonder if this is an Xavier preference. And and also, we can think about it more here, because one of the complaints I've had over the past several episodes, or past couple dozen episodes, I suppose... Is that uh, we're treating death as a uh, as an illness, right? We're not taking it seriously. Of course, we know the readers. We know that the stakes have changed, right? We've talked about this before. We know that there's a resurrection protocol, and we know that there's a way back. But one of the things that I've been harping on, maybe too much, is the fact that when a character dies, nobody really reacts. You know, I mean, with with few. With few um, except exceptions. I mean, we did just read the Marauders issue where they found out that Kitty had died. So yes, there are some there are some exceptions to the rule. But I mean, we saw Quentin Choir get his head cut off. Nobody really cared, you know. And yeah, Qu- Quentin's a jerk, but still, this is someone dying. You know, we had Wolverine gut that guy during Fantastic Four miniseries. Nobody really cared. It's uh. I don't know, it just feels like maybe these are clones that we're reading. I mean, that's a very, very hot take, right? Um, But nevertheless, right now, if it would happen, it wouldn't surprise me. Because because these seeds are being planted, it seems, right? If there was just a big reveal at the end of X of Tens or whatever comes after X of Tens... Where we go deep into the the bowels of Krakoa and we see the original team there, just all in stasis, it wouldn't surprise me now because it feels like they are planting the you know, no pun intended they are planting the seeds for it. It's certainly something that I could see happening, and um, these are the kind of theories I love reading because they're just I mean everything's on the table right now, right? If you've listened to this show for an extended period of time. You'll know that I've made wild, wild guesses, and, uh, and you know, most of them were swings and misses, but that's part of the fun, you know? Um, the hotter the take, the, the more interesting it is to me. So I want to thank Evan for sharing this and giving me perhaps a little bit too much in the way of food for thought, because uh, now this is what I'm going to be looking for. <laughs> I'm going to be looking for um, examples of... I'm going to be looking at things to occur that would validate this theory, or at least not not discount it, because it's very, very interesting, and I like it a lot. So thank you for sharing that, Evan. I really, really appreciate it. I did get another message from our friend Andrew in Belfast, but uh, it was a little bit more personal, so I don't want to share it here, but I do want to thank him tremendously for the message, because... Uh, it really, it, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm known to say that things make my day, but this this really made my month. This was uh, a heck of a message, and uh, it, I really, really appreciate it. So thank you so much for uh, for your words, Andrew. I, it really, really means the world to me, so thank you. Now, if anyone else out there would like to make my day, uh, you could do so by getting a hold of me. You can reach me on Twitter at Ace Comics or via the old Gmail box, weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. If you want to check out blog posts and show notes and all sorts of stuff, you can go to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Also, there's xlaps.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com if you're just interested in this program. 
You can check out the Facebook group at 90s X-Men on Facebook. And uh, the audio archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. But I think that's where we will put a pin in it for today. Uh, like I said, next next episode we start Wave 2. Uh, wave 2 is, I'm considering Wave 2 to be four books. Wolverine, Cable, Hellions, and X-Factor at this point. And uh, we will be kicking off with that first very, very thick issue of Wolverine next episode. So look forward to that. Hope you are as well. Uh, One last giant thank you to everyone for uh, sharing their time and uh, joining me on this little trip. And uh, till next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.